Welcome to the Sneaky Dragon Listening Party with my dad and my sister Mary. Party goers, and welcome to this bi week's episode of Sneaky Dragon Listening Party. I'm David Dedrick. And I'm Mary Dedrick. I'm your daughter. <laughs> you are my daughter, hence our, hence our similar last name. And Mary is once again joining us via Skype. Yes. So thank you, Mary, for, for taking the time out and resting the uh, computer away from, from your boyfriend <laughs> and, yes. his, and his online gaming to, uh, yeah. to talk to us. At like noon he was like oh, oh they can pl- finally play dominion online it's like well i need i need to use the computer at one o'clock he was like oh <laughs> like, i <laughs> told you yesterday that i needed to record this weekend you could have done this any other time oh dear uh, uh so so mayor uh you know what you know what this episode is about don't you it is this is the second half of our uh novelty songs mix that we started last episode that's right and i'm going to assume that you you are coming into this week with this or this week this episode with the same amount of uh enthusiasm as you brought to the last bi weeks episode well maybe <laughs> you're, we'll we'll you're already yawning that's not a good i was not yawning oh okay it was it sounded like a it sounded like an open like a talking yawn I was kind of yawning. Okay. I was a little bit yawning. <laughs> yeah, you were a little bit yawning. <laughs> uh, so, yes. So, that's not, not an auspicious beginning to, to this episode. But I'm going to overlook the fact that you were yawning. And and just sort of... So, uh, side two, was this an improvement over side one for you? Or did you just feel like it was just one long slog from beginning to end? I think that this side was an improvement. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. What uh. Sorry, I was just, um, whoops, there we go, ah. <sighs> what happened? Um, I'm just, I have been using technology so much recently, and yes. I feel like I've, like, using it more, I'm forgetting how to use it. Okay. Like, I've been spending, like, all my time at work getting people set up on FaceTime. Okay, okay. And I was having to do this like, troubleshooting for someone, for one of the residents. Yeah. And it was like... She's like, oh, I have a Skype account. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, okay, well, like, let's get you logged into your Skype account because she has her own iPad. Yeah. And then... Um, she has an iPad. Wouldn't FaceTime be easier then? Well, I think she's got family members who don't have iPads. Oh, okay. Okay. But yes, FaceTime is way easier than Skype. No offense, Skype. Don't uh, ruin our call because of <laughs> because I said that. Um, and don't worry, Skype is like, already oh. wrecking the call. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, so like, let's get you logged in. And then... It was like, your account has been locked. <laughs> I was like, what? And it was like, your account has been locked because of suspicious activity. Oh. This is her whole Microsoft account. Wow. I was like, she's like 85 and mostly blind. <laughs> maybe she just like, has what? trouble. Maybe she has trouble logging in and it's just, it's suspicious that every time she goes to log in, it takes her five attempts. Yeah, maybe. But I don't think, uh, I don't know. I couldn't, I was like, what is going on? And I was like, okay. I was like, well, and it was like, um, we can open your account, but you have to do two-step verification. So enter a cell phone. Um, you just, and, but their two-step verification, it, it was just like, put in a cell phone number and we'll text you a code and then you can get in. Yeah. And I was like, 
anyone could put their phone number in here. <laughs> like that's the word. Like why don't why don't you send it to her email? And it wouldn't do that. And I was like, "Did you have a cell phone?" And she was like, "No, I don't have a cell phone." And I was like, "Okay, well, like let's try to call them." And I tried to call them. There's no way to call Microsoft. Huh. There was like a number I found somewhere on their website, and I called it, and it rang forever, and nothing happened. <laughs> I was like, you're Microsoft. There's this room with a, it's like a huge room. It has one table in it with a single telephone on it. Yeah. It's a single landline and it's just ringing. Yes. In this empty room and and people are like outside. It's just like a hive of activity. Yeah. This room is is empty. Absolutely. I was like, you're Microsoft. How do you not have a phone number? And then I was like, oh, and there's like, oh, we've got this online chat. And I was like, okay, I'll do this online chat. And the other thing is I had half an hour to do this. Uh Uh-huh. Until I had to go and set up someone else's FaceTime appointment because yeah, I do like yeah. thirty-minute appointments for each resident because yeah. it's it, it was like just getting so busy, mm-hmm. and I was like, I was like, oh my god, we're like twenty minutes into this thirty-minute session. Yeah. So I was trying to do this video, this chat thing, and I was like, it has locked me out, and I don't have a cell phone. And it was like, oh, okay, well, I'll click one of these links. I was like, I've been to all these pages, and there's no help. And then it doesn't let you type anymore. I was like, what is <laughs> happening? And, huh. and I was like, I was like, okay, like whatever. And I was like, you know what? I'll just put my phone number, my cell phone number in here yeah, so that we can just get this over with. Yeah. And so I put my cell phone number in and it texted me a code. Yeah. And I was like, again, that is not good verification. <laughs> Cause like if I hacked into this person's account and I have their email and yeah. I have their password, yeah. Then I can I put in her email, I put in her password, then it says put in a cell phone number and we'll text you something. So I did that. Anyone on the planet could do that. But just because I was sitting next to her, yeah. it was okay. Yeah. But I was like, why? <laughs> why huh. is this your solution? So It worked, didn't it? And then I You know why, Mary? I don't yeah. Because only old people use Skype. Mm. So they have to yeah. make it as, as easy as possible. And that is why there's all this suspicious activity on her account. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> it's like people from people from all over the third world are using are using our computer to phone long distance, run gambling websites. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like dark calling web people pretending to be servers. tech support, tech support <laughs> companies. I got a. I I've been listening to a lot of this podcast uh, called Reply All. It's mm. like a tech tech podcast. It's okay. a podcast with the internet. Um, and I was listening to an episode that they did about um, phishing. Okay. And I was listening to an episode that they did about um, call center scams. Yeah. And then I got an email from Pinterest that was like, your Pinterest account has been logged in somewhere like strange. And it was in North Carolina. Uh, They're like, if this is you, I was like, well, it's not me because I'm not in North Carolina. Yeah. And so I was like, I was like, oh, like, I guess I should go. And I was like, if this is not you, click this link and go through and change your password. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I'll do that. Then I was like, wait, what if this isn't really Pinterest? Because <laughs> it's not. What if, this is, what if this is a phishing thing? Yeah, it is. But then I'm pretty sure it was. No, no, it, it was Pinterest. Oh, okay. Because huh. then when I. But don't, don't, if you that happens and you're curious, don't use their login. No, I know. Links, I know. Go, go to Pinterest on, like, you know, yourself or through your app yeah. or whatever. That's the best way to avoid those sort of problems. The other thing you should do is always click on the email address. Yes, click I know on, that. Because it's hidden, and then when you reveal it, and it's suddenly ergluck123 at, you know, yeah. biznasty.net. You know, mm-hmm. and you go, wait, wait a second. This isn't, this doesn't sound like Amazon's email address. <laughs> yeah. I know, I'm suspicious about everything. I got a $3.17 return because of some sort of price 
guarantee thing from Amazon. And I got it and I was like, what is this garbage? This looks so fake. It was from them though. Cause they had a, I bought a CD and I guess okay, yeah. there was some, you know, thing where they overcharged, you. they overcharged me by $3 and 17 cents. So they were refunding. It. Oh, okay. And oh, yeah, uh, but yeah, the Pinterest, the email was no reply at account.pinterest.com. And I was like, okay, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> so then I went, so then I went to just to Pinterest on my browser. Yeah. I reset it through there. But yeah, because one time I had got an email from my bank, from CIBC. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, like suspicious activity. Click here. To, and I clicked on it. And it goes to a page that looks exactly like the banking homepage. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and you can. So I went and I like, went there and I clicked in the, the like, um, the, you know, like put in your information thing. And I clicked there. And then I was like, well, maybe, maybe, wait, maybe I should like make sure. So then I went and clicked on contact us. Yeah. And it didn't work. Uh, so like, no, it was all just like, it was just like all dead, dead. Yeah. Yeah. Like nothing. You can it's just a static image. It's not click a, on anything except yeah. for like the login part. Huh. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. Be careful. And that's forever not there. Be careful out there. Mm-hmm. Don't don't. If you have anything like this, don't connect to it via the email. Go to go connect through your own, the whatever route you normally take to your internet banking, etc. Yes. Because there are tons of people out there. In fact, there are people in Haiti who are killing each other in order to get this information, like your emails and stuff like that. It has more value in places like that than than drugs do. Hmm. Because there's so I much mean, so much money to be made from from all these email accounts just by sending out all these these phishing scams. Yep. So be careful. Be careful. And having yes. said that, I will now fall victim to this horrible thing. <laughs> so, uh, all right, Mayor. Well, let's. So everything. So I should ask you though. Everything's fine where you are. You're 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 good. Everyone, you're healthy. Mm-hmm. I'm good. I'm still working. Yeah, that's good. It's nice to be able be able to keep working. At least it kind of gives you like a shape to your day. Mm-hmm. I imagine Duncan's feeling rather aimless right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, he actually learned the other day that he might have some. Um, some work oh cooking for the army reserves oh cool mm-hmm. that'd be good mm-hmm. yeah work is good even if it's not your dream job it's better than just idling better than nothing around. better than <laughs> idling around and everyone's mm-hmm. healthy at the care home yes yeah knock on wood so no here I'll, actually knock on wood no yeah. no one is no one is sick yet no i have i've already complimented where you work for their their uh forward thinking and this whole mm-hmm. thing. I mean, they were they were like two weeks ahead of the curve on on sure. social distancing and sure were and the yeah. lockdown and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually just last week we had two people come back from the hospital for unrelated things, yeah. Um, yeah. both falls, which is pretty common with older people. Mm-hmm. And it's like as soon as they're back, they're on isolation for two weeks. Yeah, yeah, that's um, good. That's good. And how about people mm-hmm. who are treating them? Do you have to wear like masks and gloves that you that you get rid of when you go in there or and wash up? Yeah, after so you only it? nurses are allowed in. Oh, okay. Okay. No one else. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you have to fully gown up when you go in. Booties, gloves, um, gowns, yeah. everything. Yeah. And now every time we interact with residents, we have to wear a face mask um, and an eye protector. Good. That's fair. Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yep. Well, I'm glad they're being careful. Okay. Let's let's start. Let's turn. Let's turn from these serious matters to some fun, because that's the whole point of this this two shows, isn't it? That we're in the lockdown, it's very serious out there. There's this tragic time in, in, in human history. And let's let's celebrate it by listening to hilarious novelty songs. Mm-hmm. Because there's nothing better than 25 novelty songs in a row. <laughs> 26. 26 novelty songs in a row. Yes. No way. Oh, actually 27 novelty songs, according to my... No. 
I'm looking at it on uh, I'm looking at it on my iTunes. Nope, I only had 26 songs. Oh really? Mm-hmm. Uh oh, we might have a. Well, we'll find out. We'll find out. If I accidentally left a song off. Okay, so uh, Mare. Yes. You know what? I'm gonna do a little. I'm gonna do a little bit of a reversal here. I'd okay. Like, I'd like to talk about this song before we play it, just because I mm. think that some of the backstory at, will, will add a little bit of resonance to the to the song. It's, okay. And in fact, we're gonna play a bit of a longer version of the song, longer than I included on this mixtape, because on the mixtape I just wanted to play the song itself because I like it so much. But I feel like if we there's a a beginning section to it that's considered separate from this song. It, it's like the it's a, has a different title and it's its own track on on the CD and but I'd still like to kind of play it because I think that that will make will make um the, the this part of the song understandable to to listeners what what what's going on anyway rather than just this kind of snippet of weirdness but so this is um this song is ob- well not obvious to people out there yet but obvious to you this is Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention I guess he's oh. still touring under the Mothers of Invention name at this point what what's that dear sorry oh oh I was gonna it actually is not obvious to me because I did not have a track listing for this. I sent you a track listing, didn't I? No, just for the first half. No, I sent you both halves. No. I'm pretty sure I did. I'm going to investigate by looking at my mes- messenger later on, and you may get a firmly worded letter from me. I'm looking at it right now. And I didn't I didn't send you two of them? I thought I sent them both You sent me two, and they encompassed the first half. Oh, shoot. Sorry. I went, we go uh, from okay. what? Right. You, you well, can send fair, me a firmly worded letter. No, no. Uh, well, I won't do that because it seems unnecessary. But to be fair, I didn't actually look at it until today. Okay. <laughs> the track listing, because I was like, I don't, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice to have a bit of like a surprise, okay. but it's also nice people to see it when we talk about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you didn't know this was Frank Zappa. Okay, well, this this nope. is uh, Frank Zappa and, and the Mothers of Invention, and this comes from uh, a set of he put out a collection of six double CDs. Uh, called "You Can't Do That on Stage Anymore," and the collection—excuse <clears throat> me—the collection spans from the late '60s, so from the time with the original Mothers of Invention, through the '70s and into the '80s, ending in 1988, which would have been his final tour that he that he did with uh, that was collected on. He later released a collection called "The Best Band You've Never Heard," and it was just like a you know a bunch of a collection of live tracks that were recorded because at some point in the mid 70s he bought a mobile recording studio that was called the utility muffin research kitchen and he could bring it with him when he toured up to that point shows had to be recorded in kind of major cities where you could uh, get access to recording equipment to record the show via the soundboard and so, for instance, this this show, which was recorded at the Rainbow Theater in London, they could record this show because they had access. They could rent equipment in that in London, but they couldn't have, if they had a doing. We're doing a show in Poughkeepsie. They couldn't have, you know, rented equipment there. So, so what his regret was, and why he bought the 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 portable unit was was that he felt like he was missing some great shows that were occurring in s- small towns and only getting shows in the big cities, and then you were you were relying on. Often you're doing the the big cities were often end of tour cities, and so the band would finally be getting there exhausted, sick, and then putting on a show and sometimes two shows in a night, and it weren't necessarily the best shows of the tour. Often, you know, sometimes they were just you know they were, for whatever reason they were on fire that night in Poughkeepsie, whereas when they played in New York City, there was an okay show, and sometimes it's based on the audience too. A New York audience is going to be kind of jaded and might not be as enthusiastic as that 
that that small crowd in Poughkeepsie who you know took the the time and trouble to to go to a show, uh, Frank Zappa show, whereas mm-hmm. the New York crowd is just there because it's trendy, you know, or whatever. Right. So so yeah. So now this song Sofa is this was unreleased at the time. This is the a live version. The the song was eventually released on an album called One Size Fits All. But on that album, it was sung by George Duke, who isn't even in the band when it was recorded, but this version was recorded. I always think it's sort of interesting that one size fits all if you spell the letters backwards, A-F-O-S, spell sofa backwards. But anyway, it has two versions of it. There's sofa number one and sofa number two on that album. One is a uh, one is an instrumental and one is uh, sung. So now I think that the version on one size fits all is pretty good. It's not the best song on the album, which is uh, San, San Bernardino, sung by Johnny Guitar Watson. But, or maybe... Is that one got? Um, it doesn't matter. The uh, that's a pretty cool nickname, though. Johnny Guitar Watson. Yeah. Yeah, it is a great nickname. Yeah. I assume he played guitar. He did. Yeah, he was oh, a guitarist okay. from the fifties, and uh, and Frank Zappa was a huge fan of his. Hm. It really influenced his playing when he was learning to play guitar as a young as a teenager in the fifties, and so when he had the opportunity to work with him, he was very excited. So to me, this is well, this is probably Frank Zappa's most famous lineup, and not necessarily because we know them best. But it, the the group at this point consisted of three of the original mothers, Frank Zappa, of course, Don Preston on keyboards, and Ian Underwood, who also played keyboards, and then alto sax, or at least woodwinds, because he also played flute. And then there was three turtles in the band. So there was the singers, Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, and then Jim Pons, the bass player from the turtles, and then Ainsley Dunbar, uh, a British blues drummer on drums. So this version of the um, band... I just want to quickly point out yep. that, yes, that is a chicken. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I have my window open so you can hear the chickens uh, wandering by once in a while, just in case people are wondering what that noise. It was just sort of a, a muggy day out today, so I, or at least in the shop it was muggy, so I opened the window. And that's what we get. Chickens. They're really on the move today. They're just running around like crazy. <laughs> so this band, Mary, was forever immortalized in the Deep Purple song, Smoke in the Water. Do you know that song? Uh, One of the most yes. famous riffs of all time. Do, I know that do, song. Do, 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 do. And that song, in that song what the song is about is about a, a mother's concert at the Montreux Casino in Geneva, Switzerland, where, to quote the song, some stupid with a flare gun burned the place to the ground. But he, this person did that they shot a flare gun in, the, in, in a enclosed building into the roof of it and caused an enormous fire that burned the entire place down. Oops. That's why there's smoke on the water, fire in the sky, as the song tells us. I guess the band were playing, they were playing their fantastic instrumental song king kong and the guy got the guy got a little excited and decided to fire a flare gun and it destroyed the band's equipment like everything they owned was destroyed in this fire yikes so zappa was in favor of canceling the rest of the tour and returning to the states but he left it up to the band who of course also made their living from touring and so you know he didn't want to cut them off from from money if they wanted to continue and and they all opt they all opted you know to continue the tour so they had to cancel quite a few shows um in france and in france what? belgium and the uk as well why are you laughing oh because i get to hear the chickens oh <laughs> okay uh france belgium and the uk and uh and they um wait are you laughing at the chickens now me yeah no here they come get away from my window <laughs> what? they want to say hi it's as if i feed them all the time they not, just love not you from the window though I, I love you and your ability to produce food for them <laughs> true my ma- my hands magically uh magically uh, in my hands blueberries magically appear 
Yes. That's what I should say. So they had to scrounge up equipment. So they like bought or rented a bunch of new equipment, which didn't work very well. And like their first show they performed, which was here at the here in London at the Rainbow Theater, a show that they recorded. Uh, the show was plagued by feedback because all the instruments were <laughs> weren't very great, but you know they were as good as they could get on on last minute notice. And so, man, imagine being the guy who ruined that whole tour. <laughs> well, Mary, let me yes. tell you about a guy who ruined a tour. Oh, so they performed this show, this show that they could have canceled and gone back to the United States. They performed this show with a bunch of equipment that didn't work very well. So it's huge frustrations the whole night as they're trying to mm-hmm. sing or trying to play and, and enormous feedback is ringing around the, the, the theater. Uh, at the end of the show, <clears throat> their first show of the night, they were, they were going to do two shows of the night. At the end of their first show, they came out to do their, they did their encore, which was the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand, which they played quite a bit on this tour. Um, young man, I think possibly mentally disturbed, definitely on drugs, jumped up on stage and angry because he felt that the show he'd been cheated by a less than than stellar show. And also that Frank Zappa was making quote unquote eyes at his girlfriend. He pushed Frank Zappa off the stage of the Rainbow Theater stage and into the orchestra pit. Frank Zappa received serious injuries, a broken leg, a broken rib, a hole in the back of his head, what, a paralyzed arm and a damaged larynx that permanently lowered his voice. Oh my God. He had to spend a month in the hospital and a year in a wheelchair. And it had the added consequence of having to break up the band because he couldn't afford to to pay them while he was laid off for a year. Oof. He just couldn't support them without an income. So and he wanted to go back home. <laughs> and now the added consequence of this was also mostly irreparable break between him and Howard and Howard Kalin and Mark Volman, who suddenly without an income decided to continue re- to touring and recording as the Fluorescent Leech and Eddie that were names given by Frank Zappa to, to uh, Volman and Kalin because they were unable to record under their own names because they were embroiled in this really complicated contractual dispute between White Whale Records their, and the three different managers they had signed during their time as Turtles. And so because of all this legal imbroglio, they had to, they had to go, uh, they had to perform in disguise as the fluorescent leech and Eddie. That's okay, why when hold you on, well, sorry, hold on, yeah, hold yeah. on, hold on. Yeah. What do you mean by in disguise? Well, do you by... mean that they changed their names, or do you mean that they dressed up like the guys from Daft Punk <laughs> and no one knew who they were? Well, in this song, Mark Volman did dress as a sofa, but no, they did not disguise themselves as Daft Punk. But they just changed. Had, they could not perform. They could not legally perform using their own names. Okay. So on the records that came out like Chunga's Revenge or just another band from LA, uh, two Mothers of Invention albums that came out, also the live album, Live at the Fillmore. They could not be credited as Howard Kalin and Mark Fullman. They had to go be credited as the Fluorescent Leech and Eddie. Hmm. And when they decided to carry on using those names and also some, some bits that they developed during their time with Zappa, and in their defense, they were you know, improvised bits that they that maybe Zappa kind of orchestrated, but they developed through through improvisation during during live shows. They continued to do those shows, like the Sanzini Brothers routine and stuff like that, um, in in their own act. And Zappa took offense at that, but their their attitude was, well, we helped create these characters, and you know, so we're just going to keep doing it. And also, we need money, so <laughs> whatever. Too bad. Yeah, they did rehearse together in 1987, but they never toured together. So I don't know if they just couldn't ever quite see eye to eye again or if the magic was gone or what what the situation was. But I also think by that point, Kalen and Fullman had 
kind of reached a sort of equilibrium as performers where you know they could perform in package tours as a nostalgia act doing like happy together and other turtle songs and it was a very comfortable living and they didn't need to like they didn't need to like put up with frank zappa if they didn't want to and so that kind of creates a an uneven situation where one person's obviously the band leader and if he can't you know control his charges and frank zappa was a very strict band leader then it's not gonna really work so but i can't say exactly why it didn't i'm just but anyway so having said all that sofa so I'm going to, this is not, we're not going to hear it as exactly as it is on, on the, um, as it is in the mixtape, because I want, I want to uh, play a version of the, uh, well, the opening part of it, and then we'll hear the, the actual song. So, Mare. Yes. I'm going to play it so you can hear it, and then listeners will hear it as well. So this is called Once Upon a Time, and this is, we'll consider this the overture to Sofa Number 1. I don't know if I'm going to put a break in, I'll decide... Outside as we, we're going, I, I'll at least what I'll do is I'll put in a time stamp for both songs, so you, you'll know when one song starts and one song one song ends. If you happen to be looking at your phone or whatever you're playing this on, so here we go. Once upon a time. Way back a long time ago When the universe consisted of nothing more elaborate than Mark Bolman Oh, thank you, Frank And don't misspell that, that's not Mark Bolin, that's Mark Bolman Hiya, friends I want to welcome each and every one of you I want to say to you tonight, I feel great I mean, I feel great Everywhere I go, people are always coming up to me And they say, Mark Mark, 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 are you kidding? Let me tell you this, friends. I am not kidding. I mean, I am portly and I am maroon. Well, how many people here tonight can guess what I am? Uh, I can't I guess. Well, then I'll give you some clues. And the first clue is, I am portly. Does that help? Not much. No. I don't know who you are. Okay, I got one. Clue number two, I am double knit. Does that help? No, no. not much. What do you mean? <laughs> well, then I have to give you one more clue. I know this is going to give it away, and I hate like damn to tell you this. But clue number three. Ich bin maroon. Ah, you're a sofa. Way back a long time ago, when the universe consisted of nothing more elaborate than Mark Volman trying to convince each and every member of this extremely hip audience here tonight that he was nothing more, nothing less than a fat maroon sofa suspended in the midst of a great emptiness, a light shine down from heaven. And there he was, ladies and gentlemen, the good Lord. And he took a, he took a look at the sofa. And he said to himself, quite an attractive sofa. This sofa could be commercial. with a few more margaritas in the right company. 
However, I digress. What this sofa needs, said the big G, is a bit of flooring underneath of it. And so, in order to make this construction project possible, he summoned the assistance of the Celestial Corps of Engineers and by means of a cute little song in the German language, which is the way he talks whenever it's heavy business, the good Lord went something like this. Take it away, Jim Pons. Give to me etwas Fußboden belang unter diesem fetten fließenden Sofa. Give unto me a bit of flooring under this fat, floating sofa. And sure enough, boards of oak appeared throughout the emptiness as far as vision permits, stretching all the way from Belfast to Bogner Regis. And the Lord put aside his huge cigar and proceeded to deliver unto the charming maroonish sofa the bulk of his message with the assistance of a small electric clarinet and it went something like this. All right, so that was Frank Zappa and the Mothers with Once Upon a Time, uh, recorded live at the Rainbow Theatre in London, England. And so now what we're going to do is we're going to go right into sofa number one. And so this is the actual beginning of the mixtape. And the reason I didn't put on Once Upon a Time is because... In my opinion, I feel like sort of the the kind of the kind of sketch elements of the mothers, their live stuff. It's okay when you hear it the one, once or twice, but it doesn't really it doesn't really pay off to listen to it over and over again. So, I really wanted to put sofa on onto to the mix uh, onto the novelty mix because I really love it a lot. I think that Mark Bowman and Howard Kalen have such great voices together, and I just really wanted to to, to play this song. But I didn't want to I didn't want to have the whole once upon a time part to it because i just felt it would get you know redundantly boring after a while and so i played it for you because just to give you a sense of the context but outside of that i don't think you really need it that's why it's not on the mixtape it wasn't that i was you know i just thought it was purposely leaving the person up in the air or anything like that or leaving mike my friend mike up in the air i i wanted uh i just wanted you guys to understand what was happening does that make sense anyway here's sofa number one
Okay, so that was Once Upon a Time and Sofa Number One. And Mary, I, um, what did you think of Sofa Number One? What did you think of it? This is a, not with the uh, other part attitude, but what, just as a song by itself. What did you think of Sofa Number One? Um, I thought it was, it was, um, it was pretty fun. I was, I was kind of into it. <laughs> good, good. Yeah, it's, the, I, I mean, the reason I played the first part was just so, just so I didn't have to explain what it is. I just let the band explain what the song is about, which is the idea, for whatever reason, Frank thought it, Frank Zappa thought it'd be fun to write a song in German or with German elements to it. And so he hit upon the idea of having a song about God creating, a, not only creating the heavens and the earth, but also a sofa. And and so, but when he creates, he has to create in German. And so the song incorporates German elements in it as well. But what makes it so great to me is the voices of Howard Kalin and Mark Volman. Like they can really like, they can really, when they sing together, and of course they sang together in the Turtles, they sang together before the Turtles. They sang together for a long time. They were childhood friends and who Howard Kalin snuck into the Turtles. He snuck Mark Volman into the Turtles. Before they were the Turtles, they were originally called the Crossfires. They were a surf band and they had no need of Mark Volman in the surf band. But Howard Kalin snuck him in on some pretext, <clears throat> whatever form the band took after that, when they when they changed from the Crossfires to become the Turtles and became a folk rock act rather than a surfing surfing band, they, you know, he became, you know, more prominent in the group. But Howard Kalin was always the lead singer up until the the final Turtles album, Turtle Soup. And Mark Bullman was always the, the backup singer. But their voices combined so magnificently. You know, they sang a lot of backing... Uh, did a lot of like backing vocals for for groups in the 70s as well like most prominently on t-rex's songs like bang a gong and stuff like that oh, okay they sang in what, what they called their incredi voices where they sang in super high falsetto and on those songs and it's really quite an amazing sound in, in the songs but uh yeah just the way their voices could you know it's just like the song was like written for two really good singers and whereas the version on one size fits all George Duke is an okay singer, but he's not like this. He's not someone who can like almost have like an operatic sound to them, you know, and right. just really let it rip, you know, like two guys who, you know, once upon a time sang the, you know, the, the, uh, handles the Messiah when they were younger. So they know about singing big choral parts, you know, and so they can, mm-hmm. they can really, you know, uh, bite into this, uh, into this, uh, song. I really enjoy it. I think it's a lot of fun. And then at the end of it, you hear them saying, Eddie, are you kidding me? Which was kind of a, a because one of them was Eddie. The, the one of them was the fluorescent leech and one of them was Eddie. So Eddie, are you kidding me? Was this another song that they sang uh, in the act? And so they're kind of leading into that. So yeah, that's uh, Frank Zappa and the mothers. I'm glad you enjoyed that dear. And uh, it's unfortunate that the show ended so terribly for them. <laughs> Especially when <laughs> yeah. you like, go to all this trouble to put on a show and then, yeah, it just ends up in a disaster, a disaster. Is it a disastrous tour? Oh, and Frank Zappa uh, superstitiously thought it was because the, the song Sofa mentioned God. And uh, I don't think I don't think he use I don't think he uses that part of the song on the uh, one size fits all version as well. Really? Yeah. Interesting. And that may, may might be why. Maybe he just felt he's a little paranoid at that point. Hmm. Twice bitten, once having all your equipment burned and almost dying in a fire. Twice yeah. bitten when you're pushed off a sh- stage to your to your near death. Yeah. The hmm. band thought he was dead because they were looking down on him and he was all strangely splayed out on the ground but his eyes were open even though he was unconscious and then because they thought he had a concussion they couldn't give him any pain killing drugs when they transported him onto the stretcher yeah it wasn't a great experience sounds like a bad time it was a bad time but yeah it was a great concert though it was a great concert there's a in the uh, you can't do that on stage anymore series there's like quite a number of songs on there that um 
that come from this from this concert. So he obviously liked the concert. Uh, in retrospect, looking back at it from ni- from the nineteen nineties, he thought, you know what, that wasn't such a bad concert. All right, our next song, Mary, hmm? is a Holly song called "After the Fox," which, just so people are prepared for it, was actually credited on the single. I didn't realize this. I've only ever known it as a Holly song, but it's credited on the single as Peter Sellers and the Hollies doing "After the Fox." So let's give this a listen, everyone. Are you ready, Mary? Yes. You sounded didn't sound ready. I didn't sound ready. No, you didn't sound like you're ready. I'm ready. I'm going to ask you one more time. Are you ready, Mary? No. (laughs) That time you sounded ready. Oh, good. Okay. Well, then let's let's start. Let's hear it, everyone. Who is the fox? I am the fox. Your thoughts, yes. your deep thoughts on After the Fox. I thought it was too weird. You thought it was too weird? Yeah, I didn't like it. You didn't like it? Okay. No, I'm sorry. Oh, well, that's all right. You, you didn't like a Burt Bacharach and Hell David song. That's fine. Because that's what this is. This is a song written by Burt Bacharach and Hell David for a movie called After the Fox. Oh, okay. Which, was a, which is a the... nominal comedy. Okay. We're going to say there. Oh, I was just going to say the fact that it was written for a movie. Yeah. I think makes me like it a bit more. Okay. Okay. You just, yeah. Just like. Without context, you probably didn't. Uh... Exactly. Like, like, I think that that's my problem with a fair amount of these songs is that like, I just don't know what's happening. <laughs> and do you feel like that changes how you approach a song? Um. Yes, I would say so. Huh. Interesting. I mean, not all songs. Yeah. But I think yeah. No, these, these types of songs. Yes. Sure. Like novelty songs where you're like. 
or it just seems annoying unless you then maybe if you know more about it it kind of opens it up for you yeah yes okay yeah Yeah, so like for example um peanut duck yeah i was like what's going on (laughs) but then when i heard all the story about it i was like that's super cool that gives me like a newer appreciation for the song because i understand the context in which it is it it can be enjoyed Interesting. See, I heard you know? that song. I heard that song without any context, and I loved it. So my understanding of its context comes after hearing it. And, yeah. But you know, I can understand your point. Like when you're listening to these songs in particular, or like novelty songs, you, you know, my my criteria for choosing them might not be clear sometimes. If you understand what I mean, like some songs on here, you might be like, "Why would Dad put this on here? Because it's not it's not that great a song." Or, you know, but for me. Usually, I think it's a great song. That's why I put it on, or I think it's mm-hmm. uh, kind of amusing, or whatever, or it has some sort of. But sometimes I just put them on because they're like a, a, some sort of historical interest or whatever, you know. Yeah. And so, but I do think this is a good song. Like I like this song a lot. I like. I do love. I'm pretty much like almost any song with a harpsichord in it has a good chance with me. With me, that's like that's like you're already like in the plus column because you use a harpsichord, which on the on the uh, 45 was played by uh, Burt Bacharach himself. When he produced it, he he played with the hmm. band. Uh, and the harpsichord. Yeah, yeah. He, well, he was a musician. He played piano and could play harpsichord. No, no, I know he was a musician. Yeah. yeah. So the movie itself isn't great. I'll just tell you that. I watched it when I was a teenager because it had Peter Sellers in it, and I was a huge fan of The Goon Show and Inspector Clouseau, and so I was a big Sellers fan. So whenever there was a movie on, I would watch it. Uh, but ha- learn, knowing now what I didn't know then is that Sellers had a pretty spotty career as a, as an actor. Like, you know, he did some really good movies and he did some really okay movies. Right. He did movies that would pay him money. Yeah, often movies that would pay him money. Although he seemed pretty enthused by this film. The movie is about a master criminal. A master criminal, also a, cr- a master of disguise called The Fox, who's played by Peter Sellers. And the movie was written by Neil Simon who was a playwright, but also wrote, uh, well, wrote plays, but plays that were comedies in nature. But he also was a writer for Your Show of Shows, the famous, the famous of its time comedy, like, you know, sketch program that had writers on it, such as Mel Brooks and Woody Allen and, of course, Neil Simon. And so it's, you know, it was hosted by Sid Caesar and it had, it had um, Carl Reiner in the cast. And it's a pretty famous famous show of its time, quite a seminal comedy show. And so he came out of that background. So, you know, this movie was supposed to be a comedy, but it kind of was, you know, as a writer, of course, he has no control of what happens to a movie once it leaves his hands. And once it left its hands, it went into production in Italy and it became sort of this combination of an Italian English production with Peter Sellers kind of taking over the the control of it in a way like you know he wanted Vittoria De Sica to direct it De Sica was not a director of comedies he was a, a neorealist a famous neorealist from uh, you know of early post-war Italian cinema The Bicycle Thief I believe is a film that he did and if I'm wrong I really apologize to everyone I should have maybe look this up before I talked off the top of my head well that doesn't sound like you no it doesn't at all does it <laughs> so so in the film uh, and also, like, Sellers insisted that his then-wife, Britt Eklund, play a part in the film, and it turned out she plays his sister in the movie. Mm, and, weird. Yeah, it's kind of strange. And then, um, and yeah, so... It's like, in the f- it's like uh, when I was a kid, there was a um, a, sh- a show on Family Channel, which was like the Disney Channel, yep. called Life with Derek. Yes. And the actors who were playing the... It was like about a, um, these... A blended family. Yeah, it was about these... Two teenage girls whose mom um, marries 
a, a man who has two sons and a daughter and they're learning to all live together. They live in Toronto. It was called and, the C Canadian Bunch. Yeah, it was called the Canadian Bunch. It was not called the Canadian Bunch. But anyway, the, <laughs> the actors who played this teenage boy and this teenage girl who yeah. were supposed to be step-siblings started dating. Okay. And their chemistry on the show was very strange. Oh, interesting. Because of that. Yeah. Like, it definitely comes through. Huh. Huh. You know? Wow, that's kind of creepy. Yeah. I think it wrecked a lot of kids. <laughs> Yeah, all, the, all, those, all those people shipping Sam and Dean on Supernatural. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Isn't that how it should be? No. No. <laughs> That's not how it should be at all. So in the movie, Mary, the fox mm -hmm. is hired by a, a guy who, a thief has stole, who's stolen a bunch of gold. Oh, wait, he, hold on, hold on, yeah, hold on. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Is this just a Pink Panther knockoff? No. No. Are you cause, sure? Because the Pink Panther, Inspector Clouseau, is, is the person catching the thief. In this movie... He is, uh, and this movie actually really kind of comes before I think most of the Pink Panther movies. Maybe, um, maybe the let's camera camera. It's called now. A Shot in the Dark is uh, was around this time. I think Brett Eklund was in that movie, and that's how uh, they met. Brett, Brett uh, Peter Sellers and Brett Eklund met making A Shot in the Dark. So there's only been two Clouseau films by this point. So I don't think it was quite the world phenomenon that it would would become. Maybe right. it was. I don't know. But I mean, he was in a good position as an actor. Obviously, he could have some say over a movie and and, and influence who gets hired and who gets uh, and who works on it. And stuff. So yeah, in the film, so he uh, so he's hired to transport this gold from from Africa to Europe. And of course, everyone's looking for it because it's a huge gold shipment that's been stolen. So he creates a scam where he pretends to be a famous Italian director named Federico Fabrizi, a joke on Federico Fellini, and he. Uh, is filming. He's going to film this movie in this small Italian village, and he hires this big American actor. Oh, sorry, scouts licking my face. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so happy to be let in the room. She came in the room, and I'm sitting next to the bed, and she jumped on the bed and used the bed as a vehicle to lick my face. <laughs> Scout, you're bad dog. <laughs> all right. Do you need to wash your face? No, it's all good. You're used to that. I'm used to it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so then he so he hires an American actor to be in this fake movie, and he he takes over this village. And basically, um, what his plan is is when the gold arrives, he's just going to use the the villagers to offload the ship under guise of of, the, of this being part of the film, and then just transport the gold away. But the shipment is delayed, so then he has to like actually film. What are the? I mean, someone's laying an egg, I guess. Yeah, that's definitely. That's laying a, an egg noise. That's a yeah, that, that mechanical sound of laying an egg. <laughs> this is good. Uh, good I like this. Good audio. This, is, this is good. Um, what good color <laughs> for the podcast? Maybe Dog I should. Maybe I should face, just. Maybe I should chicken just close laying this. egg. <laughs> maybe I should just close the window. It's like a metronome. So uh, I think she's done now. So. Uh, just excited. Now is the excitement bucking. I laid an egg. I laid an egg. So yeah. So the shipment is delayed, and he has to, he has to like, uh, you know, w waste time, like or, or like, burn burn time waiting for the shipment to come. So he he actually starts filming scenes, like he starts making up stuff to film and filming them in the film. And then when the gold actually does come, he gets the villagers to offload it. Uh, so that's kind of what the movie's about. And that's so that's he's the fox. So you know who the Hollies are, right, Mary? The what? You know who the Hollies were. The Hollies, yes, yeah. the band. Yeah, you know they were a Manchester-based group. That's where they they grew out of the Manchester area, and 
I, I consider them part of the second wave of the British invasion, even though they were kind of contemporaries of, of the Beatles and, 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 and Rolling Stones and stuff. They actually didn't break North America until 1965 with the great song, Look Through Any Window. Yes. Which is a great song. Look through any window. Yeah. What do you see? That one? That's right. Do, 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 <laughs> do, 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 do. Do 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 Something like that. Written by Graham Goldman, hmm. later of 10CC. Oh, okay. Uh, so the Hollies were discovered, signed to Parlophone, and produced by Ron Richards, who was George Martin's right-hand man at Parlophone Records. In fact, it was he, Ron Richards, who, who led the Beatles session for Parlophone that got them signed to the label. George Martin wasn't actually there for it. Uh, he came in later when Ron Richards said, you should come and listen to these guys. They're actually really good. And... Uh, Richards would leave Parlophone with George Martin to form uh, AIR, which was Associated Independent Recorders, uh, which Martin formed with for for with himself, Ron Richards, John Burgess, and Peter Sullivan. And uh, so, for instance, after the Fox, if you look at the forty-five, it says an Air production on it, because the what Air was, because so the reason that George Martin formed Air was because he was producing the Beatles one of the world's greatest bands, one of the world's biggest bands, one of the world's biggest selling bands. And then he looked at his paycheck and he was making a salary. He wasn't getting like any kind of percentage of what the Beatles were earning. He was just getting a weekly salary as a as the producer of the Beatles and also the person who ran Parlophone. Right. And so he said, I could be making way more money if I was an independent producer who was contracted to produce the Beatles. So he quit Parlophone, formed Air, and what Air would do is they would... And so instead of uh, record labels having to have their own staff producers, they could hire Ron Richards or George Martin or John Burgess or Peter Sullivan and pay them a percentage of the, the earnings of the record to produce the records for them. And so that was actually cheaper for, the, for um, EMI to do it that way because that money came out of the earnings of the band rather than the earnings of the, the record company. So that's what they did. Um, now, at this point in the Hollies' history, the band was locked in a dispute with its management. Uh, the group's bassist, Eric Haydock, felt that excessive fees were being charged to the group by the management. And so, so they're, you know, instead of, you know, so they're, they're like inflating various, you know, kind of uh, costs of running the, the, the group and blah, blah, blah. They're, they're inflating them and charging them to the group. And so as a result of this conflict, Haydock left the band uh, on a leave of absence. And so, and now, although the Hollies used... Um, the Beatles' friend, and I guess their friend, Klaus Vorman. You know Klaus Vorman, right, dear? Uh, personally? He's very famous in the Beatles mythology because he is the person who had a fight with his girlfriend, went for a walk, walked into the re- walk- walked into the club that the Beatles were pl- playing at on the Kaiser Keller in, uh, I don't know if it was the Star Club at that point, but walked into the club and heard this fantastic band and couldn't believe how great they were. And so the next night brought his friends to see them, including the girlfriend he had a fight with, Astrid Kirchherr. 
brought them to hear this fantastic band. And it was this group of people, the Exes, who kind of took the Beatles under their wings in Hamburg, became very good friends with them, and sort of helped to form the Beatles' image. Up to that point, the Beatles had this sort of 50s rockabilly look, and and uh, Astrid Kircher gave them the haircut that she gave to all her friends, This the what became known as the Beatles' cut, the mop top look, the hair hair longer, brushed down, cut in kind of bull cut around the head. And, you know, so they're... They, you know, so this was sort of a momentous part of the Beatles, Beatles career, meeting these people. Uh, so yeah, he was playing bass with the Hollies, but for whatever reason, for this single, um, bass was played by by Jack Bruce, who later joined Cream, um, and then, as I said, Burt Bacharach on on keyboards, and then Peter Sellers, of course, joined in with his his uh, his little his funny vocals. So there you go. Now, I just want to say one more thing about Burt Bacharach because it's it, interestingly this wasn't the first time that he'd recorded. A movie theme with a or a song from a movie with a British beat group because just okay. a year be, the year before he recorded My Little Red Book for the movie What's New Pussycat with Manfred Mann. Uh, so yeah, but um, there you go. Anyway, it's a good song. I think. I mean, it's silly, but it's good. It's a novelty song, yeah. Mary. No, no, I thought it was. I thought it was fun. But as I said, it's a novelty song by a band you wouldn't think of as a novelty song band. Right. The kind of the the sort of overarching theme of these discs even though i do occasionally include an actual novelty song in the mix so mare the next song i'm pretty sure you're excited to hear the next song yeah um, which was the holy okay. motor rounders right hot, yes okay cold, i was gonna say because again i don't hot, have the sorry. track listing so mm, that's right i'm sorry that's okay uh hot corn cold corn yes bring along a demijohn this is called Hot Corn Cold Corn from their second album, The Holy Motor Rounders, which came out in 1965. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to talk about this song before we listen to it, too, because I I, I think it's sort of an interesting, uh, conceptually interesting song. I don't think that The Holy Motor Rounders were acting in a in a meta way or aware of what they were doing, but I think that they were doing something very interesting in an unconscious way, which is they were taking traditional songs as The Holy Motor Rounders and updating them, which was done traditionally in the past, but at this point, in folk music history, the folk music scene had become this sort of lockdown, button-down, you know, piece of history, and it was no longer something that could be molded as part of the present, but only could exist in the past and be performed in the present as a museum piece. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. So the Holy Motor Rounders were, at, at its essence, Peter Stamfel on banjo and fiddle, and Steve Weber on guitar, and Stamfel and Weber were introduced to each other by Weber's one-time girlfriend, this Greenwich Village scenester named Antonia, just one name, Antonia, who would later become Stamfel's girlfriend and contribute many songs to the band. Now, the Rounders were part of a New York folk scene, which I kind of described a little bit to you there. Yes, I mean, we've talked about... We haven't had a Rounder song yet, have we? No, I don't think we have. But we have had Jeffrey Fredericks. Yeah. And also... Um, Peter uh, Michael Hurley. Yeah, Michael Hurley. Thank you. Um, but but interest, interestingly, Michael Hurley was never part of the. Was not really. I mean, he was a part of it, but he's not. Wasn't like a. He wasn't a major part of the of the the folk scene in New York City. And and um, Jeffrey Frederick was never part of that scene. In fact, he was like a rock and roller of long standing, and never really, never really got swallowed up into like a folk scene. He always was a rock and roller, and he would he would die a rock and roller. But. Peter Stamfel and Steve Weber, even though they were fans of rock and roll when they were teenagers, were drawn into this very exciting scene in New York City around folk music, which felt very new because basically because of the the anthology of American folk music put out by the folklorist 
musical musicologist Harry Smith, they collected all this wonderful, weird folk music from that had been recorded in the twenties and thirties, and he kind of reintroduced it to the this gener this younger generation of fifties kids who were kind of in this sort of barren spot in the in the in the late fifties, early sixties when rock and roll had kind of disappeared. You know, so Buddy Holly had died, Jerry Lee Lewis had married his his thirteen year old cousin, Elvis had joined the army, uh, Chuck Berry had gone to jail, so. There was this vacuum of of rockabilly. You know, Carl Perkins had had a terrible car accident, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these kind of disasters that had befallen the rock and roll scene, and it kind of left it exposed to uh, a lot of kind of boring exploitation. There was still there were exciting things happening in music, but in terms of like rock and roll, that it was it kind of hit a, a speed bump. And so, in place of it. These teenagers who, you know, this, who are kind of the kind of weirdos, you know, they kind of they gravitated to this kind of really strange music that came from a time that felt so removed from where they were, you know. And now the Rounders, who were a group that were always on the verge of drug fueled catastrophe, that's basically how they operated. They did not join in the political side of of the village folk scene. So they didn't kind of come down with like people like Phil Oaks, who basically was like a living newspaper who every, every day had a new song that reflected something that was happening in the world, nor did they, but they also steered clear of like the, what I, you know, sort of the Dave Van Ronk kind of idea where it became like, like I say, like a museum piece, something that did not, wasn't, was no longer malleable, but was like a fixed thing that you performed as faithfully as possible, you know, and the rounders did not adhere to that either. So, so this song, for instance, which was written by the father of bluegrass, Bill Monroe, or, or more likely adapted by him, because it has all the sounds of like a, a square dance song with the call, call and response and, you know, with, with, with instrumental parts in between sung parts. So you'd have, you'd play a solo and you'd have dancing going on with the singing and everything, right? And so traditionally, the song would have been played with um, a mix of guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, and bass. That would be like your standard bluegrass band and each each member would take their turn singing a, a, a section of the song and then they would all come together for the chorus and, the, and in each in between each verse they would play a solo on their on whether they play a guitar solo then a banjo solo and a fiddle solo and a dobro solo so everyone would get their their solos in there do you know what a dobro is mary a, a dobro it's kind of like a guitar but it has a, a metal section where the strings go over top of it's kind of a metal bowl it's a resonating bowl and so it has a bit of a when you play it, it has a little bit of a vibration to it. And it's often played with a slide, like often played with like a, a slide bar. So the person would have it strapped to them, but they would have it, they would have it like face side up rather than play it, you know, as normally you have a guitar with the back to your stomach and you yes. strum it. This one, it sits sideways. So it's, so, okay. it's, so it's laying uh, and the person can. Like a, like a. Like a steel guitar, basically. Oh, okay. And sure. the person can strum it and then run the run the the, the bar up and down the the neck and, and play the play the play the dobro so um that's what a dobro is so then uh so of course now the the rounders by virtue of the fact that there's just two of them had to kind of like strip down the instrumentation so that's one of the changes they bring to the song so it's just guitar and just and just a banjo more importantly though is that they throw out all the lyrics to the song except for Hot corn, cold corn, bring along your demijohn, a demijohn being a hip flask. So the song is a reference to moonshine, hot corn, cold corn, corn corn whiskey, and then the demijohn being a flask. So you're bringing that to the party, right? Oh, okay. So, 
and this is not uncommon for them. Like they would often take old songs, whether it was like, say, the Hesitation Blues, and then they would add their own words to them. So Hesitation Blues is kind of famous as being an example, the Rounders version, as the first uh, use of the word psychedelic in popular music. Oh. So because the Rounders, of course, were part of that sort of pre-hip, pre-hippie post-beat scene in the village, which had a lot of drugs in it. So their songs reflect that in their, um, because they're kind of like social commentary in the time. So like songs like, say a song like Fishing Blues later became the STP song, which you know, right? Yeah. Once a friendly hippie. Yep, that's right. So originally the song was a song about fishing and they took those those, uh, lyrics and they changed them to the STP song. And they did the same Mm. with a song called Bully of the Town. They took the song Bully of the Town and they changed it to the ripoff artist song. So it became a song about a junkie who's stealing from all his friends. Hmm. I'm going to take that in the song. It's going to take I'm going to take that bully down. And in the other version, it's I'm going to take that ripoff artist down. But, you know, with changed lyrics. So that was kind of their thing. Uh, So now, besides the chorus, we get this kind of weird. It kind of places it into this sort of post rock and roll setting. And but also kind of comments, I think, on like folk history in a way as well so the first verse of the song is a crude rewrite of sing a song of six sixpence the english nursery rhyme which goes the king was in his counting house counting out his money the queen was in the parlor eating bread and honey so they of course switch it to preachers in the pulpit counting up his money the kids are in the outhouse eating bread and honey old aunt sally kicking the gong which was a reference to smoking opium which came from a cab Kellaway song take another toke and you can't go wrong so a drug reference probably mm-hmm. probably one of the earliest drug references in, in that in terms of that in that time period if you listen to the cab Kellaway song kicking the gong uh kicking the gong around or kicking around the gong i can't remember the exact uh, it's like so it is like so drug laden with its references i can't even it's in a it's in a movie it's in a popular a hollywood movie and you're watching and you're like did no one know what he was singing he's even <laughs> doing like the the armoring motions of a junkie in the song right it's so weird and you're watching, you're like, people are so innocent that a song where a guy's on junk, he's a, a he's cokey, he's, he's, uh, his girlfriend's kicking the gong. Like, it has all these drug references. Mm-hmm. And, and you're like, wow, n- no one knew. No one knew. He must have thought he was so clever. Uh, so then the, uh, so I think that's, I don't know if he did it intentionally, but it connects folk music to its British roots, right? So a lot of these, Appalachian songs that were being played by these people had the roots in British folk folk traditions that were imported into America. And then, you know, because of the nature of those times where people were all separated from each other, had their kind of separate developments in different regions. And so depending what region these songs, you know, like, so in, say, if you're people from Louisiana, they would have like the, the Acadian or French traditions in their music. And then people in the Appalachian regions would have British influences. And so those you know, kind of and then there would be sort of mixtures between them in different areas. And so I think that's sort of a reference. It kind of references that in a way. But also the old, the old Aunt Sally references the next verse, which borrows its, its, its lyrics completely, lifts them. It slightly changes them, but it lifts them, changes their, uh, changes their order. But it entirely lifts them from the Little Richard song, Long Tall Sally. And those lyrics are, saw Uncle John with bald-headed Sally, saw Aunt Mary coming and she jumped, and he jumped back in the alley. Long, tall Sally, she's built, built for speed. She got everything that Uncle John need. And then the third verse quotes very loosely from Screaming Jay Hawkins' song, Little Demon, and Big Joe Turner's song, which was called Switching in the Kitchen. So all these kind of rock and roll songs that they'd heard growing up, they, they kind of turn into this song. And to the, I'm sure to the outrage of all the purists, the folk purists uh, in the scene at that time, they turn them into this, this crazy song. 
So um, let's give it a listen, Mary. Do you, okay, let's hear it. Now that you have all this context to it, let's, yeah. give, us, let's give it a listen. Here is... Uh, you, Dad. What's that? What's that? Sorry. Yeah. You've been talking about the songs a lot more before they get played. Yeah, yeah. Is that like a on-purpose thing? Yeah. Oh. Because I just feel like... I feel like I was sort of anticipating your complaint that some of these songs without context might not have much meaning. <laughs> so, right. Fair. So, fair. Fair. So, and, and I also think this song is... Like, I feel like this is a song that people could listen to and go, oh, that's kind of interesting. But maybe miss, like, those subtleties to it. So I wanted to sort of introduce them before you hear it. And when you hear it, then you can hear them and you can go, okay, I can see what they're doing. It's not just goofing around, but it's also goofing around. So right. here we go. Hot Corn, Cold Corn by the Holy Motor Rounders. Kids are in the yard house eating bread and honey. Old Aunt Sally, she's a kick in the gong. Take another token, you can't go wrong. Yes, sir. Hot corn, cold corn, bring along a David John. Hot corn, cold corn, bring along a David John. Hot corn, cold corn, bring along a David John. Fare the well, pretty girl, see you in the morning. Yes, sir. Sorry, I just had a panicky moment where I thought the recorder wasn't recording. <laughs> That's scary. Okay. Uh, all right. We're back from uh, the Holy Motor Rounders, Hot Corn, Cold Corn. And Mary, mm-hmm. here's your chance to add your 15 cents because of inflation to this uh, this song. What, what did you think of it? Um, I like the song. Yeah? Yes. You grew up listening to it, of course. I so. grew up listening to it, yeah. So I think it, I might be sort of, uh, oh, sorry, I'll be honest. I might be nostalgically biased. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. But also, you know, there's lots of songs I grew up listening to that I don't like. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think, I, so, I don't think, I think that you can like a song and nostalgia can be part of why you like it. But I think it's very unhealthy to like a song just because of nostalgia. Because mm. that's no, that's no good reason to like a song. Right. But it can influence it for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, like when I talk about playing like Burt, or help Burt Bacharach albums or, or Herb Elpit records at friends' houses, I didn't play them because... I was being funny. I played them because I actually liked that music. 
yeah a lot and so it was an opportunity to hear those songs because my dad didn't have every help herb alpert record and if i went to someone else's house they might have a different one than we did and i could listen to that record instead you know or the ink spots or whoever like there's lots of groups that you discover that you never would have heard uh if you if you didn't you know and sometimes you get a fun with it i remember being at a a post christmas caroling party with some friends and us dancing to the ink spots in the living room of the house which you know was entirely weird and sort of nerdy i guess but it was also a thrilling thing to do it was very fun so i i do have a affection for the ink spots because of that but i also have affection for them because i liked them before that that's why i was listening to them at the party you know what i mean yeah i get you sorry i just sent you a text oh you sent me a text i sent you a picture of scout lying on the bed oh, okay well everyone i'm gonna have to have to take a look at this because that's uh that's just how it goes it's pretty cute pretty cute picture pretty oh cute my dog. gosh it's killing me a dog on a bed <laughs> not, just a, not just a dog on a bed a dog all over the bed she when Duncan's not here she sleeps in the bed with me <laughs> um she's she's a good dog yeah she doesn't doesn't hog, doesn't hog the bed well she's a dog they all hog the bed she does a little bit but she doesn't throw <laughs> up or pee or poop on the bed yeah that's nice that's nice yeah we just saved that for amber heard booyah what what's that what did you say no, nothing so um you never heard that story? No. Oh, she took a poop on Johnny Depp's bed. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty nice, eh? Anyway, I don't know why I brought it up. Probably just, I was just being a silly, silly meanie, but, uh, but oh well. It's too late. If you're going to do that, you're going to get made fun of for it. Hey, Mare. Yes? Remember how I said I didn't, this song was about songs that weren't novelty songs? But Wait, this, what? Remember when I said this novelty song collection was about novelty songs that weren't really written, done by bands that weren't, weren't. Yes. I do remember that. The I'm first trouble. thing you said made no sense. But <laughs> that, I, I started running I, out of I started running are... out of sense the second time too. <laughs> <laughs> this mix is made or is compiled of songs made by artists who are not novelty artists. That's right. But this song is a novelty song by a band that was strictly a novelty band. Oh, okay. So we're mixing it up here. Now right. would you You're now deviating you've, from you've, your you've listened to this song. So I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you the question yeah. is, would do you think the song would be enriched by my giving some background of this song before we listen to it? Or would you rather just play it and then talk about it after? Um, I mean, I think that you can listen to I don't think you need context for this song, generally. Okay. okay. But also, yeah. you will be breaking format. To to which way? To do it which if way? You, if you talk about... I mean, if you play the song first. I mean, you've already been breaking format this whole time. Well, no, but I, we, we played the Hollies one and then talked about it after. Oh, did we? So, so far, we've gone one way, other way. And then... Oh, okay. All right. Well, then, I guess format is broken. So just do whatever you want. <laughs> but, well, no, I'm asking your advice. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think that we need to uh, to hear this song. Okay, that's fine then. Well, let's listen to it. This is the Pipkins. That already sounds like a novelty band, right? The novelty Pipkins, group. huh? The Pipkins, yeah. With the song "Gimme Dat Ding," from uh, well, this was a single uh, back with the song "To Love You," which strangely is like a completely straight 1970s uh you know love song but on the b side of this of this weird song from 1970 this is gimme that ding oh that's right that's right i'm sad and blue because i can't do the boogaloo i'm lost i'm lost can't do my thing and that's why i sing gimme gimme that ding Sing it one more time, Mama. 
Actually, I just want to go back one second to Holy Motor Rounders just for a second. Sorry. Oh. I just want to say, if you... If you're going to re-listen to those songs, and I should have said this before it was played and I forgot to because I didn't write it down. And I was thinking, oh, I'll remember, and then I forget. Listen if re- listen to the song because the banjo is pretty, pretty, like, pretty foregrounded in the song. But listen to it again and listen to Steve Weber's guitar playing. And it is so such sly guitar playing. It's amazing. Like, I saw them play live in the late late 90s. I went down to Portland and saw the, their reunion tour. And Steve Weber is such an amazing guitarist to watch live. Like he is so hypnotic. Like he's a big guy. Like he is a big skinny guy even when he was older. And so he's kind of like a praying mantis, like, like stuck, like all these weird right angles stuck out around the guitar. And then he just plays in this really interesting style. And then he's like looking at you while he's playing as well. Like he's not looking at the guitar. He's like looking at you playing the guitar like he just plays it unconsciously but he's just it's just an amazing guitar player and if you listen to his playing it's just it's quite it's quite quite good but anyway back to the pipkins so mary what yes did you, what did you think of the pipkins um i like the song i thought it was fun yeah it is fun isn't it mm-hmm. it's pretty silly i mean that's the, that's the point of it, it the point yes. of it is not to be serious this is a song this is a song for fun uh, right I never heard it until I was listening to a collection of songs by Tony Burroughs, who sings on this song. And, and then I heard it then and I thought, oh, that's really great. <laughs> it's a really good song. So um, so I put it on a, a novelty mix. Now, the Pipkins, Mary, were mm-hmm. uh, they're, what basically they were was a studio concoction of singer-producer-songwriter Roger Greenaway and super-session singer Tony Burroughs. And I'll explain to you in a bit why Tony Burroughs was a super session singer, but he was a super session singer. Now, Roger Greenaway uh, was a songwriter. And with his songwriting partner, Roger Cook, he wrote some pretty famous songs like I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing in Perfect Harmony. Do you know that song, Mary? It was most famous no. as a Coca-Cola commercial. That's how I first started as a kid. They wrote the song and then it was it was later, the lyrics were later uh, changed. Or maybe it was the other way around. It was written as a Coke jingle and then it was changed into a real song i can't quite remember but it was a huge song it was like i'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony that was then and then they also wrote the song long black i'm sorry long black long cool woman in a black dress which was uh, recorded by the hollies which we were just talking about a little while ago and it is a weird song because it, it is the one song by the hollies that no one thinks is by the hollies if you asked anyone who wasn't like hip to the fact who did long cool woman in a black dress they would go oh that's a ccr song and then you'd point at them and you'd go, ha, you're wrong. That is a song by the Hollies. <laughs> and they'd be like, okay, whatever, weirdo. Going to walk five feet away from you, not just because of social distancing, just because you're weird. Uh, six feet. Oh, is it six feet? I've been yeah, doing it wrong two, this whole two time. Two meters or six oh feet or two God, meters. I'm going to get sick, Mary. I've been doing it wrong. I've been a foot too close all the time. Oh, my goodness. Achoo. Yeah, either, either you're going to get sick or your, um, Spreading your it. spittle is going to get other people sick. <laughs> I, I don't speak moistly. Um, everyone everyone does dad <laughs> and then tony burroughs uh who sang with greenaway in in the uh, group called the kestrels in the early 60s uh and then he joined the ivy league who we played a couple shows ago remember we played a, their version of my world fell down mm-hmm. he was in the group and then uh and then that group the ivy league they morphed into a, a band called the flower pot men okay because the ivy league weren't like psychedelic enough so they had to change the name to the flower pot men and they had a, a hit with a song called let's go to san francisco and then when that group fell apart, Burroughs became 
what I like to, what I like to call the super session singer mayor because he was like an in-demand singer. Not only did he sing backup on like hundreds of songs in the 60s, 70s, he sang, he imitated other acts for those weird uh, hit collections I was talking about, I think last episode, where rather than like pay to have, pay to license a song, these companies, these kind of, these kind of uh, down market record companies, would just hire musicians to imitate the song so they could put them out on the record. Okay. And not have to pay the band for the for the performance, they just for the, the songwriting royalties. Right. And then they just pay these guys just like a session fee to, to perform the song. And so Burroughs did that quite a bit as well. But he also, he also, in the early 70s, hit it big with several pretend British bands. So they're kind of bubblegum acts in the sense that they were studio-only bands that did, okay. not, did not exist outside of their studio. Uh, their, their, well, they did exist, but they were like hired then. Like, so you'd have a hit song say, with a group called Edison Lighthouse, you'd have a hit song. And then you'd be like, oh my gosh, we don't have an Edison Lighthouse. This song's a big hit. We need to go on a tour. So then you'd hire a bunch of people to pretend they were all the time Edison Lighthouse. In the, 19, this is 1970. So Edison Lighthouse's Love Grows, Where My Rosemary Goes, was a number one song in February 1970. That's with Tony Burroughs, lead vocalist. He was lead vocalist for White Plains' song, My Baby Loves Lovin', which was also written by Greenaway and Cook, uh, which was number one in March of 1970. Then... The Pipkins, Gimme That Ding, was the number one in April of 1970. He also sang with the Brotherhood of Man, who didn't have a number one, but had a top 10 hit with United We Stand in February of 1970. So he appeared on the uh, on Top of the Pops, the British music chart show. He appeared on the show with two different bands on one show four times between January 29th and February 26th, 1970. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So on the show... You'd be watching the show and then there'd be a band with a singer in the, leading the band mm-hmm. doing the song. And then at another point in the show, there'd be another band doing a different song with the same guy singing lead. Anyway, it's kind of interesting. <laughs> and then he had another number one hit in 1974 with, with Beach Baby. Once again, another studio-only group called First Class. Now, the song, Gimme Dat Ding, was written as part of a song suite by uh, a prolific pair of songwriters named Albert Hammond and Mike Hazelwood. Now, Albert Hammond is actually famous in his own right as a singer-songwriter. He performed the song called It Never Rains in Southern California, which was written by him and Hazelwood. They also wrote Little Arrows for Leapy Lee, which is another example of a, of a uh, novelty song. But also The Air That I Breathe for the Hollies, which is a beautiful song. And uh, now this song, though, they wrote as part of a song suite for... Uh, a, for a, uh, the song suite was called Oliver in the Underworld, and it was written for a children's show called the Little, called Little Big Time which was hosted by Freddie and the Dreamers. And so in this show, it was kind of like an under, uh, like an Alice in Wonderland kind of story, but about a little boy seeking parts to mend his grandfather clock. Oh, okay. And in the story, a metronome has his click stolen by another character named the Undercog. So okay. now while the performers were singing this song, and it actually was Tony Burroughs and Roger Greenway who sang the song in the TV show as well, um... They were performing the song. It was decided that click didn't work as, uh, didn't sing very well, so they changed it to ding. So instead of give me that click, it was called give me that ding. And the song is a conversation between the metronome who has lost his ding and the pianola who's kind of making fun of him for losing his. And so Burroughs and Greenaway were so taken with the song that they re-recorded the song with an arrangement by Big Big Jim Sullivan, who we were mentioned uh, a couple shows ago when we were talking about Burke Bacharach's song. Um, um, the one, uh, da, da, da. Uh, don't go breaking my heart. That song. Yeah. 
that's what it's called right don't go break. anyway i'm not thinking of the elton john song but anyway so yeah so oh i think that you are singing it yeah and then um and it's then it's hard to sing don't go breaking my heart the burt Backrack song because don't go breaking my heart the elton john song is yeah it kind of pops in your head for some reason i think it's don't i could do that here we go ready more... don't go breaking my heart you know what it's easy it's harder to sing that part than it is the the Elton John, the Elton John one is pretty simple. It's just don't go breaking my heart. It's just like a rise, right? Whereas the the backrack one, the backrack one is is more complicated because it's don't go breaking my heart. So it's a bit more. Hard, I think, a bit harder to I sing. think that also the Elton John one is more present. Maybe maybe because we both just saw Rocket Man. Hear it more. <laughs> we just saw Rocket Man. Is that why? What? Because we just saw Rocket Man. Is that why? Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. but, also, it's just it's just a song that's like you know it's out in the world. Yeah, that you will hear. Whereas you don't, you're not going to hear the Burt Backrack song out in the world. Sorry, Burt Backrack. Yeah. So two little bits of two little little bits of trivia about the Pipkins. One is that they did. There's two versions of "Gimme That Ding" on on okay. on record, right? Not just as singles, but as a long player. One is "Gimme That Ding," which is the Pipkins on one side, and the group The Sweet on the other. Uh, the Sweet. At this point, hadn't had any hits, and they did not get any hits from these songs they were singing that were on Gimme That Ding. But they were also produced by John Burgess. Oh, yeah, who produced Gimme That Ding. It was produced by John Burgess, who we were talking about because he was one of the guys who who uh, formed Air with uh, George Martin. So mm. he was the producer of this album. And that's right. If you look at the uh, if you look at the single for the, for the song, Gimme That Ding, it says an Air production on it. So then you know that it was produced by someone who's part of Associated Independent Recorders. What's that, sorry? I said, does it? Yep. I look at these things, Mary, before I do what I'm Not at the, well, maybe, uh, like on the back it says that? On the uh, the 45. Okay. Yeah, if you look at the 45 uh, cover. Okay. I'm just looking at it on Wikipedia, and I can't see it on here. Oh, okay. I think that's just the record cover, though, right? It's, oh, it's the 45 cover. Yeah, yeah. You wanna you wanna look at the the actual cover of the of the 45, not the not the picture sleeve. Right. So, um, yeah. And so, but then the other interesting thing is they did a, a separate record. Which is all songs by the Pipkins, which sounds like a nightmare. But the final <laughs> song of it, called "All You Ever Get from Me," ends with the singers being swallowed up into the hole in the middle of the record. Hmm. They can't escape it, and they end up disappearing down the hole in the middle of the record. Kind of fun. <laughs> kind of fun idea. That's silly. Okay, that was the Pipkins, Mayor. Oh, I just want to say one last thing. About sure, the song. you can. Yeah, please. I feel like this is a hard comparison for songs like this to escape from me. Yeah. But. This song reminded me of a song from an episode of Phineas and Ferb. Oh, really? Yes. Huh. What song is that? Um, Funhouse. Okay. The song Funhouse. Okay. From an episode where Phineas and Ferb build a funhouse. <laughs> and, um... And do they use a kind of like a that sort of honky-tonk style? Yeah. So according to uh, the Phineas and Ferb uh, wiki, like the f- f- fandom wiki... Yeah. On the page for the song Funhouse, the genre listed is vaudeville and jangle pop. Yeah. Jangle, well, jangle pop is, is yeah, references the uh, guitar sound, I guess. But, but mm-hmm. also the fact that the, in, in uh, North America, the player piano or the, the tack piano, so what, we, what they call that, the, the instrument that has that very sharp piano sound, because they would actually, they would put tacks in the, in the cushions of the, on the piano, so when it hit the strings, it would make a more metallic sound. And I guess they did that in honky in like old saloons and stuff like that, because the the piano could cut through the noise of the of the saloon better. But in England, they were called jangle boxes, those type of pianos. So uh, jangle boxes. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Instead of attack piano. 
Right. But yet the song's like, well, the, I mean, the whole point of the song, every episode of Phineas and Ferb is a song. Yeah. So there's 200 over, has at least one song. So there's over 220 new songs. Wow. Um, because the very first episode, Roller Coaster, did not have a song. Okay. But then later on, they did Roller Coaster the musical, <laughs> where they built another roller coaster and did it as a musical. So uh, then they filled you know, it with had songs. a lot of songs yeah, in that yeah, one. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, this one's like, you know, it's like, living in a fun house, baby. You're living in a fun house. Do, 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 there you go. Do 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 Yep. A million doors in the hall and the tables on the wall and the bathtub is your head and a floating baby head. I thought floating baby head was pretty common on that show, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was recurring. <laughs> recurring flo- floating baby head. Giant floating baby head. <laughs> so again, in the uh, background information for this song, background information includes things like uh, during the line, lifting up a feather that weighs a ton, Phineas and Ferb were whiff- lifting weights marked 1,000 pounds. One ton is 2,000 pounds, so combined, they are indeed lifting a ton. Huh. Huh. Blah, blah, blah. But then also says the giant floating baby head is mentioned to this song, in this song. And then it has a link to the page for the giant floating baby head. <laughs> huh. Yep. Mary is, uh, will continue to lobby for you to listen, to watch Phineas and Ferb, everyone. It's on Disney Plus. I was just going to say, it's if, fantastic. If, it's on, if you have Disney Plus. If you have Disney Plus, uh, if you have Disney Plus, please start with the episode of Roller Coaster. Uh, <laughs> when I rewatched it on there, it was not the first episode. Oh, okay. But I think, even though I don't think it's a, like, I'm not saying it's like a great episode, Roller Coaster. It's fine. It's their first episode, but it does sort of set up. The concept of the show, yeah. Yeah, the concept, you know? Yeah. You do need that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And All again, right. no songs. My so. problem, my only problem is, Mary, that for whatever reason, I signed up to Disney Plus, so all the shows are in French. Right, right. Um, I think that you just need to go into settings. <laughs> what? Settings. Uh, settings. Yeah. And language. Okay. And then set language to English. Oh. oh you're like, you're like, chance. well, the only problem is everything's yeah. in French. Yeah, so I, can't... I don't know where settings is, is the problem. Yeah. I'll have to look up. I'll, I'll use Google Translate to figure out what settings is in. Yeah. It's like the time I switched my Wikipedia language to like German. And I was like, wait a second, hold on. I don't know how to change it back. <laughs> Luckily, you could read the, you couldn't, so you can read the Wikipedia article, how to change languages back. To... Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's my problem. I think that, that would Oops, be like sorry. a wiki how to. Yeah. Yeah. That would and then I would have like pictures of like terribly illustrated people. <laughs> um, I was going to say that that's one problem I have with French nowadays is that. Like on the computer, if I'm looking on French websites, like 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 especially like Amazon, mm-hmm. uh, uh, the French Amazon, I can't, I don't know what a lot of the, a lot of the things mean because they use like these sort of new words for stuff in them. Yeah. Because these new computer words that I don't, I'm not familiar with because all my everything I learned was you know written by people from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So you know I know how to say you know. Tabernacle. I know how to say. Well, I know how to say like the French equivalent of you know tele ho chaps. <laughs> But no, yeah. did nothing I mean, that any fair, teenager would learn, say to anyone else. You did you know? learn Quebecois French, mm. which from my understanding to Fran- French people yeah. is essentially the tally-ho chaps of French. 
Uh, it is two degree. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I've heard that it's like it's uh, it's there. It's essentially still like medieval. It just it hasn't. They haven't allowed it to like progress as the culture has progressed. Well, it's not. It's just that they 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 develop separately. Yeah. Because what happened in in Quebec was there was um so whether the original settlers who were like you know mostly lower class like working class French people you know mm-hmm. the voyageurs and whatnot and then farmers. But then they had the settlers who came there were more, mostly from the bourgeois class and uh, who had their own yeah, kind landed, of landed gentry. who had their own kind of language and so they brought that with them to to France or to Quebec which then to kind new of, France to New France which which was combined with with English and native the Native American languages languages and then meanwhile in France it went on its entire entirely different course because when the French Revolution happened the bourgeois class was destroyed. And so that language disappeared. Like they were, you know, their heads were cut off, and they are they kind of they just hid themselves. And so, so that whole that whole part of the culture there disappeared. And so that's when they you know split so severely. And that's why their languages are so different. But there you go. That language lesson for you folks. Dear. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, Mara. So the next song is not a novelty, but it is a novelty song. So it's a song okay. that's it's a song by a band that would not would have you know that you would have raised their hackles if you'd said well you guys are a real novelty song a real novelty mm. band but they only did a few singles and they're all kind of like this right and okay this... so they're now they're a novelty band then i guess <laughs> if they're all like this like come on come on guys. but i don't think they would have considered themselves to be doing novelty songs right but i think like, they would have considered on, themselves to be doing <laughs> incredibly interesting conceptual pieces okay sure i can see that but this is a band called the brain and the song is called nightmares in red it was actually a B-side, a B-side to a song called Kick the Donkey that came out in 1967. And let me just tell you, this song is way better than Kick the Donkey. I know it's going to be hard to believe. But this song way there. better than Kick the Donkey? Yeah. Hmm. So let's give a listen to Nightmares in Red, which has the benefit of being both weird, but also kind of funny. So let's give it a listen. What do I see? I am looking at the back of my eyelid In this world of red and black I imagine you will come
All right, we're back. That was The Brain. Mary, did this song cause you some trouble in your brain? Yes, it did. Okay. I think that's a good way to, to phrase it. <laughs> what did you think of this song, dear? Um, I didn't like it very much. I don't think you're supposed to like it. Yeah, no, it was like the the, the laughing. Yeah. And like the weird singing and all the dissonance. Yeah. It just, yeah, it's very off-putting. Yeah. And believe me when I tell you, Kick the Donkey is even weirder than this song. Like this song oh. this song feels like it has a through line. Like the okay. person is having a nightmare. He closes his eyes. You know, he all he can see is the back of his eyelids. I think that's a funny line. But, you know, at least the song makes some sort of sense. He's He's got some regrets. Maybe some death is involved in it. Uh, but it makes some sense. Whereas Kick the Donkey, I don't know what they're talking about. And <laughs> now the group was made up, well, it featured, I'm not going to say who everyone was in it, but it featured two kind of prominent British musicians. Uh, one was bass guitarist Peter Giles, who wrote Nightmares in Red, and his brother, his drumming brother, drummer brother, Michael Giles, who contributed to Kick the Donkey, but did not write Nightmares in Red. And the reason they're kind of significant is because they would go on to form Giles, Giles, and Fripp with Robert Fripp, which would later morph into the band King Crimson, which I believe uh, Michael Giles was a part of. I'm not sure if Peter Giles was. He, he was probably in the beginning, but but uh, yeah, I know he left because Greg Lake came in on bass. But uh, so so Michael Michael Giles played on the first album at least. Uh, he left to with uh, Ian McDonald, another guy in the band. They 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 weirdly left. They weirdly left King Crimson because they didn't want to tour anymore because um, Ian McDonald was smitten with a girl. And I think Michael Giles is one of those people who's just kind of like, yeah, whatever. You know what I mean? One of those guys. Yeah, right. whatever. I'm thinking of leaving this band that might have a good career. And you can make a lot of money playing with them. You want to do that? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, so yeah. Uh, Ian McDonald has said uh, that he he regrets that decision. What's done is done, as they say. They did do a really good album after called called McDonald and Giles, which is a good album and has one of my favorite rock and roll covers as well. Because it's such an appealing picture of two guys, two kind of hip looking guys in a kind of polarized picture, like a looks like it's hand tinted or whatever kind of picture, and with two like beautiful women just walking down a road in a forest and you're just like that's the life Donald and Giles they had it all he didn't realize when he got it that they threw it away and the interesting thing about my copy of that is it's a it's a promotional uh, album that was sent to radio station so it has a little letter inside it taped to the inside cover a sort of letter of introduction to um to, to potential DJs it's kind of funny what does it say I don't know I'd have to run, walk in the house and get it want me to walk in the house and get it Okay, I will. Well, no, can, I'll be can right, you just I'll be right summarize back. it? I'll be right back. You can't summarize it no, for I'll us? I'll be right back, Mary. Just one second. Okay. Hi. Are you there, Mary? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> hey there. I was just stretching my legs. Okay, so I've got the I've got the album here, Mary. So it, it has yes, it has this wonderful gatefold cover of uh of Mike of McDonald and Giles with their uh with their girlfriends. And it has a big yellow, or sorry, say it has a big orange sticker on it. It says "Promotional copy, not for sale." On the on the uh, right hand side, on the left hand side of the sleeve, it has it has numbers where it was filed at the radio station it came from. Twelve seventy three. I think this came out of uh, C Fund, C Fund's record library, because they sold it off in the in the they sold off the record collection in the in the nineties. So I, I have a few record few records from that uh, collection. My so when you open up inside, there's a memo from Vince Ferracci who I guess worked for Cotillion Records, and he says, Due to a breakdown in communications, we sent you a copy of the album McDonald and Giles, Cotillion 9042, without spirals between cuts. Please accept our apologies and find enclosed a fresh copy with bands. Cordially, Vince Ferracci. And then, if you, the next part is, 
Enclosed, please find a fresh pressing of McDonald and Giles. This copy has spirals between the selections for your convenience in programming. Cordially, Vince Ferracci. So I thought it was, I, sorry, I, in my memory, it was him pumping up the record, but no, it was just, I guess because it was done without rills, kind of like uh, Sgt. Pepper. Rills are the gaps between songs. Instead, oh, okay. instead they, they, they send out ones specifically for radio stations that would have the, uh, the band, so it made it easier to, to find songs. So there you go. It's kind of fun to have nonsense like this in your in your life. Mm-hmm. You don't need it, but it's fun. <laughs> so let me just find a place to put this record. I do. It's actually a really good album. It's really good. It wasn't it was not a hit. It did not help the band. Mike, uh, McDonald went on to form Foreigner. Anyway, let's move on from from the brain, the brain, and we'll listen to uh, to a kind of a fun song. This is a bit of a this is a bit of a jump jump blues or jump jive jump jump something jump swing. I don't know what it's called. It's a jump song anyway. This is uh, Louis Prima and his band. I'm just gonna say Louis Prima for now. It should there's there's it's a much much longer collection of people doing the song, but it's uh, from his album Call of the Wildest from 1957. This is There'll Be No Next Time. <laughs> this stranger leave my path and this made me awful sad I don't blame you but in the meantime I was getting real mad you had a right to be and I said baby what explanation do you have what, what she said she said hmm next time I said there'll be no next time that was the last time for me You told her right, and I'm very proud of you. Man, I grabbed my hat, and I headed for the door. Yeah, don't, don't, don't come back either. I knew I wouldn't be back there no more. You're doing the right thing, Sam. I walked the landlord, a real cool gent. Well, what did he say? He said, hey, Sam, how about the rent? And what you told him? I said, hmm. Next time, he said there'll be no next time. You're coming up right now. Don't give him nothing, Sam. Pay no attention to him. Man, I jumped through that window and my feet hit the ground. You was traveling fast. I figured I'd better get out of town. Wow, how was you going? When I arrived at the airport, oh, oh, <laughs> there was that man. Failure to support. What are you saying? I said, hmm, next time. He said, there'll be no next time. You can't see the judge right now. You shouldn't have gone to the airport. But he took me to see that little friend of mine. Who, that little fella? <laughs> District judge. I remember him. Room 229. Yeah, he was crazy. <laughs> he said, Sam. What is it? Your payments are way behind. Hey, what, what <laughs> I said, don't worry, judge. It won't happen next time. Hey, what he said? He said, hmm, next time. There'll be no next time. You're going to jail right now. You shouldn't have gone to the airport. I'm surprised at it. Surprised at it. He put me in a padded cell. Did they feed you? On bread and water. Man, that was well. How long did keep? 30 days later, <laughs> on my way out. Well, what you laughing about, Sam? Here come my chick <laughs> with a big fat mouth. Well, was she alone? A policeman. 
Robin Hatter <laughs> was putting her in jail. What she wanted from you? She wanted me <laughs> to go help bail. What's a dollar? I said, <laughs> next time, there'll be no next time. That was the last time for me. All right, so Mary, that was... Uh... There'll be no next time. And what did you think of that? I liked it. It's a fun story song. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the singing mm-hmm. as much as I enjoy the songs commentating on itself. <laughs> I enjoy yeah. it all. You shouldn't have gone to the airport. I'm surprised at you. Surprised at you. <laughs> the stuff like that is fun. So it's Louis Prima. Uh, he's, the ba- he's the band leader. He's not the singer of this song. The singer of the song is Sam Butera. But Louis Prima kind of gets the credit. He's the band leader. Uh, and he had a pretty long career. He started in the 1930s and he, he played all the way up into the 60s. And he kind of like, you know, rolled with the with the punches over time. He, in the 30s, he played in small combos. And then in the 40s, he, he formed a big band and toured with them. And then when big bands started to decline, he went back to small combos. And he was one of the early people who performed in uh, Las Vegas. He signed a, I think it's like a five-year contract with, oh. with uh, the Sahara. Okay. In Las Vegas. And, you know, he wasn't there all year, but he was there. He had a residency every year. And, you know, they got really well known just from doing that. And when he signed with Sahara, that's when he, with the Sahara, that's when he brought in Sam Butera and Butera's group, which was called The Witnesses. And so the song is actually credited to Louis Prima, Keely Smith with Sam Butera and The Witnesses is how it would be credited. Keely Smith was Louis Prima's, I think she was his third or perhaps fourth wife. I think fourth wife, actually, uh, by that point. And, of course, she later divorced him so he could marry his sixth wife. But, uh, yeah. Wow. That's a, uh, it's a lot of wives. A lot of wives. A lot of messing around. You can see where this song probably had a bit of a resonance for him. And mm-hmm. uh, But, like I say, he's not really singing. He's just uh, commentating on it. But I enjoy it. I enjoy it of its time sense of humor mm-hmm. and its story. And it, you know, it has a few. It has a little bit of a, has a little bit of a fun kind of a. It's a joke, and it ends with a punchline, which is kind of fun too. What's the punchline? Uh, when the girl wants him to go, when his his ex girlfriend wants him to go bail. Wants him to go bail. Yeah, wants him to pay her bail. Oh, oh, I didn't miss that. Oh, okay. He says there'll be no next time. So, um, hmm. yeah. What's really and what's fascinating about this song is that it was written by Richard Berry, who is most famous, is most famous for having written the song Louie Louie. Oh, okay. But he also wrote this song. It's uh, it's credited to him. He's the songwriter. It's also credited to a person named Joe Josea, but or Josie, I don't know how you would say it, but uh, who is actually Joe Bahari, one of the four Bahari brothers who ran Modern Records and also Kent Records. Uh, and it was basically a nom de tune, a pseudonym that he would add to his artist record so he could also collect royalties from their songs. So he wouldn't have anything to do with the song itself, but he would just add his name to them so he could then collect royalties on the song. Not too honest would be my uh, feeling of that kind of behavior, but what do I know? Did you see the movie um, uh, Dolomite, Mary? Uh, Dolomite is my name? Yeah. The one about yeah. the Dolomite movies? Yeah. Yes. So the, the people he deals with in that movie, they're, they're portraying the, the Bahari brothers. Oh, okay. Yeah. The movie portrays them much gentler than they were in real life. Right. In real life, they're, rapa- they're rapacious uh, jerks, but uh, the movie makes gives them, makes them look kind of sweeter than they were. Uh, yeah, they were pretty uh, pretty tough. Although the movie does kind of make them, does kind of accentuate their toughness too, I guess, because there's that thing where he borrows money from them and they're like, well, if you 
borrow money from us. We're going to own you if you don't pay us back. So yeah, I guess it's somewhat honest to their their rather sharp business practice. But yeah, Rudy Ray Moore was signed to, not to Modern, but they, they closed Modern in the early 60s and started a different imprint called Kent Records. And he was a part of that, part of that Kent Records line. Well, anyway, it's a good song. I'm sure people enjoyed it. The next song, Mare, I'm not sure if you like this song. Huh. I was meaning to guess what songs you liked, and I forgot to do that this time. Hmm, I'm not even well. keeping a, a, a telly of what songs you liked, didn't like. Let me look back through it again. I'll quickly look back here. Quickly look back a different way, a faster way. So yes, no, yes, yes, no, yes. It's pretty Can good. Wait, is this from the big... No, this is just from... from this show. This side, right? Yeah, yeah. So yes, no. But maybe you changed your mind. Did you change your mind after the fox when you heard what it was about? No. You still don't like it? Yeah, too still weird. Still no. So yes, no, yes, yes, no, yes. And now we're on to Jilted John by Jilted John from 1978. Let's give it a listen. And when we come back, I'm going to guess Marion's reaction to this song. And I think I might be right. Here we go, everyone. Ready, Mary? Yes. Here we go.
And we're back. That was Jill to John. And Mary, I know, I know I'm know, i interested in hearing what you think about this song. But mm-hmm. first I want to guess what you think yes. of this song. what do you think? And I'm going to say that you didn't like this song. You're going to say I didn't like this song? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what, Dad? Yep. I thought this song was silly and fun, <laughs> oh. and I enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, I'm glad I'm wrong. Oh, that's great. That's great. <laughs> that's fantastic. Oh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. It is fun, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's not, the one, it's not one you want to hear every day. But no, it's fun. Like it's a great story, and I just I like. Um, it's actually by a person named Graham Fellows, and he was a drama student at uh, Manchester Polytechnic, which is where he's from. He's from Manchester. Oh, okay. Because he was an actor, he liked the idea of performing as a character, and so he created the character of Jilted John, and then he he did a couple of songs as Jilted John. So he wrote these songs, and then he wanted to record them, like have them put out as singles. So he went to a local record shop, and he said, "How do I?" get these songs that I've written and, and, and get them made into singles. Who, who would do that? Who would record them for me? And they're like, well, you could go to London to Stiff Records. They might be interested. And there's also Rabid Records that's based here in Manchester. So fellows went, hmm, which is closer? I think the one down the street from me. So he went to Rabid Records and you know presented the songs. And they said, well, we want to hear them as demos. So then he went and he recorded them as demos, set, set, presented them to them. And then two days later, he was re-recording them again as the final song, produced by Martin Hannett, who produced Joy Division and other, and other groups for Factory Records. But this is pre-Factory Records, and so he, he recorded, uh, he was just a producer for hire and, and produced this song. And I think it's a lot of fun. I think I just, I just like the how teenagery it, it is. Is that what you like about it, dear? How teenagery? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It just feels, feels very authentic to, the, to someone's experiences uh, in the song and, and its bitterness. Weirdly, when the song was released... On, by, as a single by Rabid Records, this song was the B side, and a song called "Going Steady" was put on the A side. And "Going Steady" is in no no way, no way at all as good as Jilted John. No joke. But what happened was John Peel played it on his show, and he said he play, played Jilted John, and he said he said if this song ever gets national distribution, it will be a big hit. And he was right because it was picked up by EMI, who distributed it, and it was a number four song. So he was correct. And then fellows. Did a, he did an album called uh, True Love Stories as Jilted John and also as Gordon the Moron. So he had like some answer songs to Jilted John song and stuff like that. And it kind of tells a story. But none of the songs are as good as Jilted John. And then he later created a character called John Shuttleworth, who was like this character who was... He played a, he played a kind of cheap Casio synth. And he wrote a song about pigeons that he wanted to play in the Eurovision uh, song contest. Okay. And so... They did like a fake documentary about him called Euro Pigeon. Euro Pigeon, okay. Yeah. So it's like it's like a fake doc, like a, it's like a mockumentary, right? So pretty pretty early on, like pretty pretty forward thinking. There wasn't very many mockumentaries at that time. Only uh, all you need is cash. The Ruddles one would be the only one I could think of. Yeah. So he did this one as as John Shuttleworth, this this guy who had written this song about pigeons on his keyboard, and he was wanting to get into the, the Eurovision. And it has interviews with other people who were involved with the Eurovision and stuff like that. And it was done like it was done like it was like a real documentary. It's kind of funny. And then he produced, created a character whose name I can't remember now off the top of my head, but who uh, as a musicologist who takes all this undeserved credit for influencing famous songs. That in some disastrous way he caused to happen, right? But it's not like he intended to. He just did some sort of accident that made the song, you know, what it was. So, for instance, erasing part of the tape for um, Cockney Rebels, "Come Up and See Me, Make Me Smile." Okay. Because there's the famous pause in the song. It wasn't supposed to be there, but he accidentally erased part of the tape. So he, right. he takes full credit for that, you know, and stuff like that. You know, so. Oh, okay. Another silly character. So you know, he's 
it's a good idea. Like, so he was an actor, kind of like Steve Coogan, you know, who'd like Ellen Partridge and, and other characters. He just creates like a character and then he does a project with that character. Right. Fun. Anyway, it was fun. And I'm sure you agree with me. Yes. It was fun and also silly. It was fun. And also silly. And silly, yeah. And I think Jilted John is a pretty funny name for a <laughs> character. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's like your whole, um, your whole entire identity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Your whole bit is that you were, your girlfriend left you mm-hmm. and to go with Gordon. Oh, Gordon. He's, he's not even that cool. But he's better looking than him. <laughs> just because he's cool and trendy. Yeah. I like his argument. So he's so honest. He's too honest for his own good. Yeah. You know, just because he's better looking than me and he's cool and trendy. Why would you leave him? Why would you leave him for, for leave me for him? Yeah. Yeah. But don't worry. He's going to get his meat. Uh, get rid of his name of his meat to beat him up. Right. <laughs> that's good, though. It's fun. Good fun. Okay, let's move on. Let's move on, Mary, to the Fashionettes. The Fashionettes. The Fashionettes. The band so good, they didn't have much released. But this song is called called Daydreamin' of You, uh, which was a seven-inch single backed with Only Love. It came out in 1964. So let's give it a listen, everybody. This is the Fashionettes. You ready, Mary? Yes. Okay, I'm glad you had to think about it. All right, here they are. Had a ticket for walking down the middle of the street. People yelling and horns going beep. Look out, girl, is what they say. Heaven to see the life will break, all the trouble I get into. Daydreaming of you. best friend just to say hello she said you got a lot of nerve you stuck up so and so you passed me right by on the corner yesterday when i said hello you just went on your merry way yeah that's the trouble i get into Um, we're done daydreaming. What did you think of that song, Mary? Um, oh, don't you want to guess? 
Well, you're uh, I kind of gave it away, but okay. Um. Well, no, 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 okay. no. Okay. Ignore that. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna think that you like this song because it's a cute song. It's well sung. It's uh, it's fun. I thought it was it was sweet. Yes. It was a pretty sweet song. Yeah. Um, it kind of had that like 1950s. Sure, it's but that doo wop kind of sound, yeah, doo-wop. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, sure. that's what I wrote. I wrote, I said, um, I'm not usually into that doo-wop sound, yeah. but I did think that this was pretty nice. Sure, sure. Well, because it's a combination of things, right? It's It does have, like, the, the group is based in vocal harmony groups of that time period, so the doo-wop sound, which, you know, was most popular in the 50s, but did have, like, a kind of 60s revival in the early 60s. But it's, I'm sorry, what, what year was this song from again? 64. Okay. Uh, the time of the girl groups, you know, so yes. they're just sort of like just, just, just on the cusp, just before the Beatles came and destroyed that entire genre, <laughs> and not intending to, because the Beatles loved that genre. I mean, they covered the Marvelettes, they covered, they covered, uh, well, did they cover everyone? Tell me, tell me, tell me, because they did that other song by the, well, they did Chains, of course, by the Cookies, but they also did, um, what's that song? What's that group? Ah, oh, I can't remember. It doesn't matter. Damn, I'm mad at myself. The Burt Bacharach song, anyway. Baby, it's you. The Shirelles. Oh, oh I can keep my Beatles cred intact. Oh, Mary. Yeah, I was like this oh. close to deleting a completely Beatles from the whole internet. <laughs> so, it, but it's, so it's a combination of that sensibility with the songwriter, uh, who was Jackie DeShannon, who was kind of like out of a, a certain sort of rock and roll sensibility, but also a country sensibility because she was a country girl at heart. And so she break, bought, bought a little bit of country to the to the rock and roll that she played. And so there's a bit of a combination of that. So so you've got her music and lyrics with, with the fashionettes, doo-wop style singing. So I think it's a pretty nice combination. And it's not like a hilarious fall down on the floor laughing at song, but it's kind of cute about a girl who's so in love with her guy that mm-hmm. she's walking in traffic and walks by her friend who won't talk to her the next day and stuff like that. This has a kind of a fun little story to it. So I put it on because you know what, Mare? What? There's not a lot of comedy songs sung by girls. Mm, two girls aren't funny. That's a well-known fact. is established by world-famous author Anthony Hitchens. Who? Or Tony Hitchens. What was his name? Tony Hitchens? Uh-huh. Something Hitchens? Anthony. Sorry. Yeah, Anthony Hitchens, right? Anyway, I... he was a famous writer. And he said that women aren't funny? Women aren't funny. He wrote an article about it. He Anthony was... Hitchens, but we're not talking about the linebacker for the Kansas City Chiefs. No, I don't think so. Maybe I got the name wrong, though. Something Hitchens. Christopher Anthony. Hitchens. Sorry. Christopher Hitchens. I'm sorry. Christopher Hitchens. Okay. I, that whole not getting remembering the Shirelles just threw my, na- my my brain into into a shattered state. Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. He was one of those, one of the, the new atheists that were storming the, oh. the tower with uh, oh. with Richard Dawkins and uh, yeah. other people. Sam Harris. Mm-hmm. and uh, Replaced by, um, by Rick, uh, Ricky Gervais. Ricky Gervais was another one of those guys. Yeah. 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 Yes. They all, they all were absolutely correct. No way, that, no way you could argue with them. But yeah, so uh, not much is known about the fa- the fa- fashionettes here. They just were not not a big success. They tried, they tried, they tried all kinds of ways. They they were just a duo, uh, featuring Darlene McKinney and Josephine Rossborough. They also recorded as the Fashions. They also recorded as the Dollettes and the McKinney Sisters. Although they weren't sisters, they just never made it. This song was produced by by a guy named Gary Paxton, Gary S. Paxton to be exact. Uh, best known as the producer of Ellie Oop. You know the song Ellie Oop, Mary? I don't oh, think you, so. You must know because it was on Goofy Greats. Oh, then I do Ellie know, Oop, but I don't. Oop, 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 Ellie Oop, Oop, Oop. And then he also uh, produced a song 
The Monster Mash by Bobby Boris Pickett. So that's, that's what he's best known for. Um, but he also produced other, you know, other groups around LA at that time period. And he produced the Fashionettes and a lot of songs he produced just on on spec. So he would produce, you know, he'd do the song, do the song, and then he'd chop it around and see if someone was interested. And and so there's a song that became a big hit song in um, in Northern Soul called I think it's called Total Control or something like that, or Losing Control. Oh, Losing Control. Yeah, I'm thinking Total Control is the is the class song. <laughs> Losing Control by uh, by the Fashionettes, and it was like a big hit in, in Northern Soul, but it was never released on record. Someone just found like a, an acetate of it, and it became like a, you know, because those guys were all about finding like hidden gems that no one had heard before, so they could like play them for the for the for the Northern Soul fans and right. be like and be like the big the biggest DJ on the scene because they had the most secret songs, and that's why that's why some 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 songs are like were not known for a long time because the when they found acetates, they would like cover up the label. With so that no one could see who the songs were, and then they'd write different bands' names on those labels. So then it made it hard to figure out who who actually did the song when people got less insane about this stuff. But there you go. Are, are, were you reading about Christopher Hitchens, dear? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was an interesting guy, a very good writer. But uh, but he had his little mm-hmm. bugbears. Sure. Yeah, I was reading one thing that he he said that I thought was in was funny was of um uh, he said of libertarianism and and Rand's objectivism i've always found it quaint and rather touching that there's a movement in the u.s that thinks that thinks americans are not yet selfish enough (laughs) that's funny i was talking to your grandma the other day and she was talking about seeing ann rand talk in portland oregon when she was living there Mm, when she was younger and i said oh were you a fan she goes i was in those days i said yeah i said i i think it's a lot of nonsense but you know you know, sometimes when you're young, you fall for those sort of things. It seems smart, I guess. The idea of people... She goes, nowadays, whenever I think about Anne Rand, I think about a, a, a girl I worked with who was from Alaska. And talking about uh, Ayn Rand with her and her saying her saying um, about Atlas Shrugged where they're going to build this utopia in Alaska. Hmm. And her this woman from Alaska going, what are they going to do with all the Eskimos? <laughs> <laughs> Just like this kind of very naive, you know, concerned for for these, as if it was really going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's not. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's let's go on to another song. Let's leave the fashionettes and Ayn Rand behind, and Christopher Hitchens, mm-hmm. as amusing as I find him. He seems like a person that is fun to know from a distance, but wouldn't have been a great <laughs> friend to have. There's a story by Martin Amis where they were driving to they were driving to um oh they went and visited Saul Bellow who was Martin Amos's favorite author. He loved Martin. He loved Saul Bellow. So they go there. He goes there with, with Christopher Hitchens. And Christopher Hitchens, the whole time, is just a complete a-hole to Saul Bellow. Like, just yeah. the biggest jerk in the world. And Martin Amos is just furious with him the whole time. And they get in the rental car, and they're driving, and he starts he starts getting angry at Christopher Hitchens. And they have this big fight. And Hitchens is like, finally, he just gets so mad, he's like, he wants to fight Martin Amos. And he insists <laughs> that they pull over. And Martin Amos get out and fight Christopher Hitchens over this whole thing. And so they oh pull over. They pull over to the side of the road. Martin Amos gets out of the car. Christopher Hitchens slides over, starts the car, and drives off. <laughs> oh, my God. Leaving Martin Amos on the side of the road. And he does not come back to get him. Oh, my God. <laughs> what, a, what a jerk. They were still friends after that. <laughs> <laughs> we were listening to a podcast the other day. Yeah. And um, it's uh, in the someone in the podcast was talking about getting into an argument with someone. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, arguing with this guy is like wrestling a pig in the mud. After a while, <laughs> you realize that the pig 
like enjoys it. <laughs> like he's just doing it because he wants to yeah, wants yeah. to argue. I was like, that you know, he's not, like he's not that doing that. it to win. Yeah, yeah. He just likes rolling around in the mud. Yep, that was me when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I would argue pe- with, with people against evolution. Just for fun. Just yeah, for fun. Uh, Duncan Duncan does that too. Oh, yeah. The other day he was he was arguing with me that motion smoothing looks better. <laughs> Ugh. I know. You, you know why he thinks that though? Why? Because he's used to playing video games, so he's used to like all the animation and video cutscenes and stuff like that. Because it looks very similar. Yeah, I guess it's true. All right, let's play another song. He, he did. He did change his mind. Good. I'm glad. He he admitted later that he was just didn't know what he was talking about. So good. <laughs> anyway, what's right. the next song? Okay, everyone. This is the secrets. This is uh, a song called "I Think I Need the Cash." It was a, a single only that came out in 1967. <laughs> Uh, and it was the A, it was the B side to the A side, which was, which was called "I Intend to Please." So let's give it a listen, y'all. You don't know the meaning of the word love when you turn my whole world upside down, and you don't know what it's like to be loved when you're only concerned with what goes on around you. But I don't want to change you No, I don't want to change you I just want my diamond ring back, baby Want my diamond ring back Cause I want my diamond ring back, baby Want my diamond ring back Cause I've just about decided that we're through And I don't expect I'll ever want to see you And what's more to put, I think I need the cash it's the sunny, give me money days that made me see When you accept and expect me to be there And I can't imagine you would ever want to be Any different, you're the one who doesn't care I don't want to change you, no I don't want to change you I just want my diamond ring back, baby, want my diamond ring back I want my diamond ring back, baby Want my diamond ring back Cause I've just about decided that we're through And I don't expect I'll ever want to see you What's more to the point, I think I need the cash Come on, come on now Come on, come on now Come on, come on now You know I don't need you just Give me my diamond ring back, baby Give my diamond ring back Cause I have to have my ring back, baby Have to have my ring back Cause I've really made my mind up And I'm sure I never ever wanna see you Much more to the point I think I need the cash Much more to the point I think I need the cash and we're back mary i think i need the cash what do you think i i liked i liked it yeah but i did find it a little bit repetitive okay like i felt like it went you got you got it and you thought well that's enough of that well yeah like it went it went for too long without saying much like interesting or different mm. like it kind of just conti- it was like oh we've got this like short little bit that's interesting we'll just continue doing that short little bit <laughs> as if Which, it was a b-side yeah yeah but kind of funny kind of a silly song uh can i have my diamond ring back i think i need the uh so this was a group that was very hard to find anything about for for a long time and then i found a cover 
that told me that a member of The Secrets was Clifford T. Ward. And so I went around that way and I discovered the following things. One is that The Secrets, as I said, was, was a songwriting vehicle for Clifford T. Ward. Completely unknown here in North America, but he did have uh, quite a bit of success in, in Great Britain in the early 70s. But uh, here, well, don't know. But, uh, but his success was tempered by his reluctance to tour. Now, The Secrets grew out of a group called Cliff Ward and the Cruisers, who, Mary, believe it or not, were the winners of the 1963 Midland Beat Band of the Year contest in Birmingham. That's right. The winner of the Midlands Big Band of the Year contest in the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. Yes, despite, famous. Despite this. You know, yeah. you know they say yeah. that 9 out of 10 bands that win at that yeah. go on to win a Grammy. That's what they say. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Clifford and the Cruisers were that tenth band. Ooh, yeah. So unfortunate. Yeah, it was unfortunate. So, so despite those stellar accolades, despite the fact that there was a parade held for them, where hats were thrown down and streamers were thrown in the air, and I'm sorry, there's a parade for them. Mm-hmm. Yep, because they won the Midlands Band of the Year. Right. So despite all that, in the mid '60s, the band lost and found several members, and then was variously renamed Martin Raynor and the Secrets or Simon's Secrets, before finally settling on the name The Secrets. In 1967, The Secrets broke up, and then Ward attended the Worcester Teacher Training College and began teaching English and drama at North Bromsgrove High School. And now he was there for quite a few years, uh, but he continued recording and songwriting, or songwriting and recording his songs, I guess. And he released an album on John Peel's Dandelion Records label in 1972. Unfortunately... The label was on its last legs, was collapsing rapidly and couldn't promote the album. So it kind of came and then went without much of an impact. But he then signed a deal with Charisma Records and had enough success with his second solo album that he was able to leave teaching to concentrate solely on music. So it did, it did have a, fu- a happy ending in the end, or at least a happy stopping place, as they say. Right. So yeah, so I'm going to play another song by him, though, because I I don't, I just like it. And I think it's kind of interesting and it's... Um, uh, it's kind of right up my particular alley. I just want to play this, and that's why I'm going to play it. So this is uh, Wherewithal by Clifford T. Ward from his second album, Home Thoughts, that came out in 1973. So let's give it a listen, everyone. Here we go. Wish I had the wherewithal To attract your attention I had the wherewithal to attract your attention. You were so not for us. You introduce a new relation in my life. But you were so nonchalant. I don't suppose this new sensation will materialize. This feeling so hard to part with 
So that was uh, Clifford T. Ward with uh, his song Wherewithal. I just I like it. I think I like it so much because he uses the words non-pareil as well as nonchalance and wherewithal. Those are all great words, all in that song. Part of the show is playing music people maybe haven't heard before, and that's always my. I always want to like you know spread the word, spread the word that there's other people out there that maybe you haven't heard before. Just as there's other bands that I haven't heard before, and that's why I appreciate when people send me mixtapes. Should we play another song, Mary? Um, yes. It's totally up to you. No, let's play another song. Okay, okay, great. That's a good, good, good choice, because if we didn't, it would be kind of a, a long end of the show. So this is Jonathan Richman and the Modern Lovers and his song Government Center that came out in 1975. So let's give it a listen, everyone. Let's go, let's help the office workers. This song is actually really uh, untimely right now, when I think about it. But anyway, this is uh, Government Center. Here we go. You know, we have a lot of hard work to do today. What might that be, Jonathan? Well, we got a lot, a lot of hard work today. We got a rock at the government center to make the secretaries feel better when they put the stamps on the letter. They got a lot. Desks and chairs now at the government center where they put the stamps on the letter and then they write it down in the ledger. So we gotta rock a rock a rock a non-stop tonight uh-huh. at the government center where they put the stamps on the letter and then they write it down in the ledger. Won't stop until we see secretaries smile And see some office boys jump up for joy We'll tell old Mr. Ahern, calm down a while Sir, that's the only way the center is ever gonna get better So, we gotta rock a rock a rock a non-stop tonight At the government center Where they put the stamps on the letter and then they write it down in the ledger Oh, tonight, we'll make them feel all right Oh, tonight, what you say, man? Make a new bed. Oh, yes, tonight, we'll go there tonight We'll take the everything we got We'll take the amp, we'll take the guitars We'll do anything just to make the secretaries feel better At the government center Oh, tonight, man, yes, tonight Oh, let's hear about it Feel good, let's make them feel good. All right. Hey. 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 
All right, Mary. What 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 did you think of Jonathan Richmond's song Government Center? Um, I thought it was pretty fun. Okay, oh, good. I'm glad. I was thinking, have, I think you liked it. We have played Jonathan Richmond before, right? Have we? We've talked about him before. I don't know if we played him before. I, we might have. Okay. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe we've just talked about him. Maybe you mentioned him for some reason. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Here's a fascinating little little tidbit for you, Mayor. On the Wikipedia page for Jonathan Richmond, there's a picture of him performing in 1984 at the Soft Rock Cafe in Quetzalano, Vancouver. And oh, okay. I, and I was at that show. You were at that show? Yeah. Hmm. Cool. So I thought I was like so excited because that was a really, really, really great show. Like so good. I was so happy that I went to, went to see it. And I, I wouldn't have known about it except that I got hired by Zulu Records to, I, they, they gave me a free used record if I would go and uh, distribute handbills at the Soft Rock Cafe for them, which I promptly did. And I got a free record. And the record I chose was the English Beats first album. There you go. How's that for fascinating? Hmm. Well, you know, probably like a four. <laughs> out of ten. Oh, I thought it was out of five. Shoot. Nope. Dang. But it yeah. wasn't out of a hundred. That's good. It's looking the right side, I guess. But what about that? I saw him at the Soft Rock Cafe, and that picture is in the Wikipedia page. No, that is pretty cool. That rates higher than a four, right? Yes. How about maybe a probably six? like a five. No. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That is really interesting. <laughs> so Jonathan Richmond Mayor yes. was kind of he was kind of an acolyte of the Velvet Underground when he was younger. Okay. Uh, their home away from home was Boston, which is where he was from. And he would often go and see them play live. And he became like kind of the band mascot. He would go backstage and visit with them. And they would always let him come backstage when they, when they came. They, he became, he went down to Vancouver, or not Vancouver. He went down to New York to visit them and, and their home clubs there, the Matrix, I guess. And, and the, yeah, he saw, he was a real big fan of theirs. And so, and so obviously when he became, started playing music himself the first thing he did was kind of play in a velvet style M- more more influenced by like the loaded era velvets rather than the earlier um kind of like sister ray version or or you know like the white light white heat version uh, or version of the velvet underground uh so yeah so he started a group called the modern lovers and the modern lovers are like one of a sort of a seminal band in the development of punk rock music uh the band's song roadrunner uh, was an early cover song by the Sex Pistols. Like they played it at their shows and stuff. And it was basically a two chord, two chord song, very easy to play, and it's, mm-hmm. but it's very great. It's a great song, uh, part of the gr- grand tradition of Roadrunner songs that exist in rock and roll. So, including "I'm a Roadrunner" by Junior Walker and the All Stars, or Bo Diddley's song, which is also called Roadrunner, or the Roadrunner theme song, which is a great song too. Roadrunner, coyotes after you. Mm-hmm. That's a iconic. It is. You're saying it's not? How would you read it out of 10? It's iconic, Mary. No, no, I said that's a good song. How would you read it out of 10? Iconic scale. Oh, okay. I'm, I don't like being pigeonholed into this one style of, of, <laughs> uh, okay. of... All right. Well, how about this then, Mary? Okay. On the iconic scale out of 1 to 100, how would you, how would you rate it? Ooh, that's even harder. Yeah? Got to do it. I don't know. Got to do it. Rate no. it. No. Rate it. 1 to 100 is... Rate it. One to a hundred is hard. Come on. No, I can't. You can. Ugh. It's pretty obvious. But it's it's obvious. It's like what? Yeah. Seventy three. Anyway, let's go on. So despite being very popular in their local area, like in the kind of the Boston area, they were unable to secure a record deal. They despite many different demo sessions, they did two different de- demo sessions. One produced by the Velvet Underground's John Cale, which must have really been exciting for for uh, Jonathan Richmond, but also are you silent because you're mad at me, Mayor? Nope. 
Are you mad about the fact that I interrupted you and and I because I knew what the actual rating was for the iconic scale of of uh, the rotator theme on the one to one hundred iconic? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not mad. <laughs> Sorry, so dumb, but I love it. I don't know why. Why do I love it, Mary? Why do you, I don't know? Why do I love that so much? I don't know. I cannot tell you. Can you rate it on a scale? <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> um he also they also had demo sessions produced by Kim Fowley, who is like a producer kind of influencer who who is on his on the way to to creating discovering slash creating the runaways. They also were flown out by AM, who, you know, recorded them and went, nah, we're good. So in nineteen seventy three, Richmond pulled an about face, what the French like to call a volt fast. And he uh, he disowned the band's previous songs, feeling they were too dark, and he wanted he wanted to scrap them basically and start all over again. And he wanted to do us develop a softer, more family friendly style. And the rest of the band said no, and so the band broke up. And so keyboardist Jerry Harrison he went on to join the Talking Heads, and the drummer David Robinson went on to to join the the Cars. And Jonathan Richmond went to California, and he became Jonathan Richmond. And when he was there, he signed to Berserkly Records. And because he didn't really have a band, what he what he did was he recorded a few songs for 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 the Berserkly label, using uh, members of other Berserkly bands. So there's members from Earthquake and members from the Rubenews, and they recorded four songs together that appeared on an album called Chartbusters, well called Berserkly Chartbusters that came out in 1975, and it had four Jonathan Richmond songs on it, including a uh, sort of updated Roadrunner, but also this song Government Center, and uh, I just love this song because it really. It really, unlike Roadrunner, which I also love, but I love in a different sort of way, Government Center, it really does like sp- sp- kind of point the road forward for where Jonathan Richmond was, was going to go as, a, as an artist. You know, he, he did um, that song, of course, but he also did songs like uh, Here Comes the Martian Martians, Abominable Snowman in the Market, and the Dodge Veg- Vegematic, I'm a Little Dinosaur. You know, just sort of songs like that. So he kind of got this really kind of childlike element to his to his songwriting, and I think that song kind of reflects that as well. It's obviously like a sort of a naive idea of what how you could bring cheer to people working in a government center, or that you even should bring cheer to people working in a government center. That they would welcome you and your band, bringing cheer to their government center. You know, so it, it's kind of a, but it's kind of fun. But you liked it, did you? Yeah, I thought it was a fun song. Good, good. I'm glad. Yeah, it's uh, it is a it is one of my happiest thoughts that I did go to see Jonathan Richmond. And what's funny is I went and saw it with, with my friend Rob Rebsel. We went to, down to see it, the, who I did I did the fancy generic drivel with. And he wasn't allowed to go to concerts. Like his mom and dad wouldn't allow him to go to concerts. So he just told them that he was coming over to my house for a few hours. So then we had to like run to the bus, catch the bus, go downtown, watch the show, then run from the show back to the bus, catch, we got to the bus just in time, caught the bus back to Delta. And then it looked like he wasn't gone that long. And then he went home after, and he could he could sort of reasonably claim that he had been over at my my place for a couple, well, three hours. But it was good. It was a good scam. I'm telling you right now, Mary. we planned it well. All right, let's move on. Let's move on from my memories. All right, Mare. Yes. Scale of one to ten. Rate my memories. Uh, your ability to remember things. Sure. Sure. Zero. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> uh, that's true. <laughs> All right. You know what, Mary. Do you know a band that I love very much? Um, I know many bands you love very much. Okay, well, this is one band I love very much. This is No Fun. Oh, okay, yes. And their song, Susie Side, from their EP, 
that was called No Fun at the Disco from 1979. This is No Fun with Susie's Side. Let's give it a listen, everyone. Hi, boys. Yeah. 
All right, so that was the classic No Fun lineup with Susie Side. Mare, what did you think of Susie Side? Mm-hmm. I thought it was fun. Yeah? Sorry, you're, I thought it was a fun song. But I asked yep. you what you thought of it, and then you went, uh-huh. <laughs> what does that mean? Mm, it meant that I'd, I'd made a, a poorly calculated decision and was eating a pecan. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, you should do it while we're <laughs> listening to the song, not while we're talking about the song, but okay. I thought we were going to talk... Not, I thought we were gonna listen to the song for longer. Okay, <laughs> I realized we were coming back so so abruptly. Uh huh. All right. So um. So yeah, you enjoyed the song? Yeah, I thought it was fun. Yeah, I think it's fun, and I I like it. Well, I like the song itself. I think the song is 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 cute and it's fun. But mm-hmm. I also love the weirdness of it because it exists in a time when parents were okay with their children going into teenagers' houses to record music with them. <laughs> Like that doesn't exist anymore. I don't think there's too many parents yeah. who, no. you know, a local group of teenagers. So I'll kind of explain the song. So this was the classic lineup of No Fun, as I said. This was David M. on drums and vocals, his friend Jim Hamlin on bass and vocals, and then Dan Veer on guitars. But this song is a bit of a twist because it has the addition of Susie Goodwin, who I wrote to... What? Oh, it's not... Uh, I was just seeing if Uncle David wrote back to me. I wrote him and asked him how exactly how old was Susie Goodwin when that song was recorded. But he, I, I know that he was working last night uh, doing his security job, so he probably is sleeping in this morning. So, um, so uh, yeah, he didn't respond to that. But I think she was 10 years old at the time when she sang this song, Susie Side, and he also, she also sang uh, contributed vocals to a song called Blues Girl hey, and then Little Boy. And so... Yeah, I just find it fascinating. I got, I like the song. I love I love the fact that the band, you know, want want her to like them so much, you know. And then she's like so dismissive of them, you know, make like a banana and split and all that kind of stuff. So, but we're no fun. That's so true. Just I just like all those little jokes and I just I, I really enjoy the fact that uh I don't know, I just find it fascinating. Just that just I mean, I grew up in that time period and so I know that it's true that you know, you would just hang around with teenagers and there was no there's no th- second thought about it, you know. Like no, mm-hmm. no parents went. Should kids be hanging around with teenage boys? I, I don't know if that's a good idea. You know, like no, it's fine. The, they're they're apparently where where um, no fun recorded was just a regular hangout for neighborhood kids. They just come in and out and goof around and and uh, and occasionally participate in songs. And David also wrote a, a later song for Susie Goodwin to sing called "From the Bottom From the Bottom to the Top" or from maybe from the top to the no from the bottom to the top. I'm pretty sure it is. And um, and in that so- it's a song about. Uh, about her rise to fame and and uh, and then subsequent fall, I guess. And um, but Susie Goodwin declined to record it. I guess she wanted to maintain her her you know those the three perfect songs that she sang. And uh, and so the song was sung instead by by Ban Chantus Pico. She sang it on on the album New Switcheroo, which would have been kind of fun if Susie Goodwin had had been willing to do it. But it's one thing to sing when you're ten, another thing to sing when you're in your late twenties. Right now, uh. I wanted to play another No Fun song from around this era just because, once again, it just fascinates me because the song opens with a little boy singing excitedly into a microphone and then falling off a chair. <laughs> and then the song starts. So we're going to hear the whole song. It's a good song. It's no fun. So I guarantee you that it's good. But also it's amusing to me just because, once again, just the, this that weird cultural artifact of kids hanging around with, with, with <laughs> near adults. So let's give a listen to... Uh, because well, like, cause we, we, We've established right, that No Fun recorded in, in their basement, right? Yes. So that it's in their family home, and so kids are, you know, around. And so, yeah, so here we go. This is uh, from their EP, Fall for a Cliche, which came out the year before 
No Fun at the Disco in 1978. This is the song Fall for Cliché. And we'll really hear someone fall. So let's start it. Here we go. So we're back. We're back. Another really long show, Mary. Boy, these shows seem to get longer and longer. We've been recording for two hours and 48 minutes. Two days. 
All right, so let's uh, let's <clears throat> let's go to our second to last song. Okay. This is uh, Ringo Starr. Okay. Uh, it's a B-side to his hit song, It Don't Come Easy, from 1971. And this song is the charming little mm -hmm. Beatles tribute, early 1970. Let's give it a listen. Lives on the farm, got plenty of charm, beep, beep. He's got no cows, but he sure got a whole lot of sheep. A brand new wife and a family And when he comes to town I wonder if he'll play with me Laying in bed watching TV cocky With his mama by his side she's Japanese They screamed and they cried now they're free And when he comes to town I know he's gonna play with me This long-legged lady in the garden picking daisies for his soup A 40-acre house he doesn't see Cause he's always in town playing for you with me I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna guess that you thought this song was pretty good. Yeah, I thought it was fun. It is a fun song. It's a nice. It's a nice song. It's sort of like a little window into a particular time period in the Beatles' history. This was a, after the Beatles had broke up, obviously, and and I think it was originally called. I think one of the working titles was Four Nights Come to Town," spelt as N I G H T S, not K N I G H T S. But I think early 1970 is a great title for it, just because it's. One, it's kind of blank. It's kind of a blank title. It doesn't really give you like an idea what the song might be about. But also it gives you, a once you hear the song, it gives you a perfect idea of what the song is about because it just sort of encapsulates a moment in the in the history of the Beatles so well. And obviously it's an open letter to his former bandmates. Although, to be honest, only his relationship with McCartney was strained at this point, um, mostly because they they got into a fight over, McCar over McCartney's insistence of uh, releasing his solo album at that time it, rather than what had been planned to be released, which was Ringo Starr's album Sentimental Journey, followed by the uh, final Beatles album Let It Be. But uh, McCartney wanted to, I think he wanted to highlight as soon as possible the fact that the Beatles had, had broken up and he was doing that using his, his album, although the album doesn't contain any hints to that, an accompanying 
um, kind of like self-performed uh, interview, like kind of McCartney interviewing McCartney, does say in the interview that the Beatles have broken up. And so I think he wanted to be the person who said that. And so, yeah, he got in, a, in a, quite a big fight with Ringo about it. Not so much on Ringo's part, but Paul McCartney was very angry about it. And so that's why he says, uh, like the first, the first verse is about Paul McCartney. Did you realize that when you're listening to it? No, I didn't. Oh, okay. So yeah. So that's what the song is about. It's about his relationship with each of the three Beatles. So the first one I is... I mean, to be fair, yeah. I did not know it was a Ringo Starr song. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I realized. Although his voice is pretty uh, distinctive. But yeah. So it starts with, you know, he's got plenty of charm, lives on a farm, beep, beep. Um, da, 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 doesn't have... Uh, has a whole lot of sheep. And then he goes on, you know, from there. And then he says, uh, when he comes to town, I wonder if he'll play with me. So that's that's kind of shows where his relationship with Paul McCartney was at that time. Not, not very well, not very, not a very good relationship. Then, uh, and then we have his relationship with, with, with John, where he talks about the fact that, you know, John is, is, uh, goes, going through his own kind of struggles. He mentions the fact that he screamed and he cried to be set free, which refers to his primal therapy. And then he says, when he comes to town, I know he'll play with me because at this point, in, when he's right, when he wrote the song, Ringo was actually recording, uh, playing drums on John Lennon's first solo album, the Plastic, uh, Plastic Ono Band album. And so, and, you know, so obviously they had a, a good relationship still. And, 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 uh, and then the third verse is about George Harrison, where he says, you know, a cross-legged uh, cross guitar picker, uh, his, you know, long-legged wife picking daisies for his soup. So, you know, referring to the fact that George Harrison was a vegetarian and that he was a guitar player. And then he says, when he comes to town... Uh, or he he doesn't see his wife because he's always in town playing with me, you know. And the irony of that being, of course, is that the guitar parts in the song are being played by George Harrison. So, and who also helped produce the song. So, Starr recorded the basic tracks for the song while he was working on the Plastic Ono uh, Band album in October 1970. And then Harrison helped Starr finish the track while producing his single "It Don't Come Easy." At that point, adding rhythm and electric guitar parts as well as his distinctive slide guitar part to the song. Now. Band friend who we already talked about, Klaus Vorman, played bass on the song. He also played bass on Plastic Ono Band. And according to Vorman, Starr added the opening dobro part to the song. Dobro again, Mary. And then... Dobro. Yeah. And then he all played, also played the guitar, the walking bass part, and the piano vamp as he admits to his musical limitations in the fourth verse of the song, where he says, I can play the guitar in A, B, E. I can't play bass because that's too hard for me. I can play the piano if it's in C. And whatever else he says. So, but uh, there is a piano part in the song which no one has been credited for, and so the the uh, speculation is that it was played by a musician, American musician named Gary Wright, who was in England and had dubbed the dubbed the piano part for "It Don't Come Easy," which was in the same month as they were working on on uh, early 1970. So it would seem likely that he probably did the guitar or the piano part for the song, but it's not no one for sure. Because everyone has forgotten. But there you go. I'm glad that you like that song, Mare. It's a wonderful song. Uh, I don't have it. I don't have the single. I have it when they released the Ringo album, the best solo album by the Beatles. When they released that album, uh, it was on there as an extra track because it was, had been a B-side to It Don't Come Easy. So there. So there, Mary. I guess It Don't Come Easy is also a single on there. It was not released as a uh, as a song. Was that me making that noise? I dropped my paper. No, that was, that was me. Sorry. Oh, okay. Okay. Or wait, are you talking? Can you hear the video game? From the other room? No, no. Oh, okay. No, I just I bumped my hand against my mic. But oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. That's all right. I'm not used to. I'm not used to it. Yeah, I know. I know. Okay, oh. so let's uh, let's move on to our final track, Mary. This is a band we've already heard this band many times, so I'm not gonna we're not gonna talk about it much. 
This is the monochrome set and the song Avanti, bracket, 10 don'ts for honeymooners, bracket. Now this version comes from their uh, album Volume Contrast and Brilliant. Oh, sorry, yeah, I'll, sorry, Volume Co Contrast Brilliance, which came out in 1979. Just to be clear, the version on Volume Contrast uh, Brilliance is not the pre-records single from 1981. It is instead an earlier demo version that was recorded at a session for EMI Records when the band was was uh, kind of looking around for a record label after the uh, after Dindisk, their previous record label, had, had collapsed. So obviously, EMI passed on the band, and they soon signed with Cherry Red Records to record Eligible Bachelors. But this song was recorded for um, EMI. And I got to say, it is the best version of the song. The single is okay, and I might like it better if it was the first version I ever heard of the song. But the fact is, is that this is the first and only version of the song I heard for many, many years. And so it's the one I love the best because I just, I love how, it's just a very simple version. It's just, you know, it's just done very quickly and done very, whereas the other version is a bit more complicated, has a bit more complicated elements in it, but I don't feel like they help the song any. I feel like they kind of detract from it and, and they kind of take away from just the very simple elegance of the song. And it's, it's very silly. The lyrics are very silly. And I think I will, of all the songs on here, I think I will post the lyrics to this song on the website when, when I do the show, just so they're there if you want to look at them, because I spent many, many years puzzling over the lyrics to this song. Many, many years. So let's, uh, let's give it a listen. This is the monochrome set. Naked down Mount Everest with lilies up my nose. I'd punt up the Ganges in a vest and holler the she blows. I'd fish for Tony in meat madras with blotting pads as bait. I'd converse with shrimps of higher class about the church and state. I'd play hoopla with Saturn's Soliloquy for munching onion rings. I plant mystical back in a field on St. Augustine's Day. I sharpen my sword and beat my shield. Some sort of a brain. I juggle with my furies. Juggle with my 
Now, Mary. Yes. I know for a fact, I know for a fact that you like this song very much. I do like this song. I like the monochrome set. Yes. I enjoy the song. Yeah. I think this is a fun song and it's a good song to end with. It ends with a kind of a a long fade out. And uh, so that was very appealing to me because even though I was doing, even though I was doing, um, you know, novelty songs, I was still trying to think of it in terms of like an album. I was trying to think of it in terms of a rise and fall. I was trying to think of it in terms of a good ending between on both sides. You know, in one case, I chose that kind of very small intermission as a bit of a, as a bit of a uh, palate cleanser between between sides. But um, yeah, yeah, this is a this is a, I love this song very much. You know, and of course, I first heard this album as a teenager. It was I first it was first lent to me by a friend, but I liked it so much that I ended up trading. I think I traded three Pink Floyd albums for what this one album. Oh wow! <laughs> but I didn't want the Pink Floyd albums. Believe me, no interest. One of them was The Wall, which is uh, up there as one of my least favorite albums. Besides the song. Uh, comfortably numb that's a great song the rest of the rest of that album blah so yeah that uh that's it mare do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to say about this novelty mix um no i don't think so no i I, although i don't know i feel like i feel like novelty songs are not bad yeah they have a place yeah i enjoy them in, in like tv shows sure right like uh, obviously, Phineas and Ferb, as, men- as mentioned this week, or Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, as mentioned last week. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I think there's something about listening to 26, 26 or 27 of them in a row. <laughs> yeah. That's just yeah. kind of like, it kind of wears you down, you know? I can see that. I can see it's just that. like, it's nice to have either like a break with more serious songs. Yeah. Or to have it, yeah, to have a novelty song be like a break between more serious songs. Yeah. Or... Um, have it be, yeah, something that has like context within, you know, a story where someone builds a fun house and then there's a song about the fun house <laughs> and all the features of it, for sure, example. Sure. Yeah. No, I can see that, dear. I can see that. I, I, you know, I'm gonna agree with you. In the in the first place would be that the way that I'm doing these these novelties. I mean, novelty songs most of all, but yeah, it's just it's. Like the CD is not a natural length, I don't think, for like a a, a listen. Like I think it's way too. Yeah. I think it I think as a format, it's way too long. I think, you know, I think that it's better. I think that it's better if I think as a as a format, it's way too long. And I think it, that it would be better if, or I think it is better if if bands treat CDs, which could be eighty minutes long, as a forty five minute long record. I do think that's better. At the same time, I wanted to give value for no money for these for these uh, tracks for these or for the CDs you know and so my initial when I initially started it I I was doing them as shorter CDs but then I felt like I was ripping off people even though they weren't paying any money but I just felt like I wasn't giving them full the full whatever they're get, we're getting all the songs they could right so, yeah but I probably did pile it on and I wouldn't I honestly would not recommend that anyone 
really do really listen like Mary did listen to like a whole one of these CDs. It's probably better to listen to that part of it and then move on to another CD for a while and come back and listen to, to more songs later on, but not to do it all at once. I just think that's, mm-hmm. that's a lot of, that's a lot of work, mm-hmm. but I'll agree. But you know what? I'll also say Mary, mm-hmm. I peeked ahead just cause I was curious. I was looking up something. I peeked ahead at novelty mix number four. I mean, sorry, novelty mix number three. Not number okay. Four. I no, almost had three. a heart attack. <laughs> I was like, um, I'm, I thought that there was only three of these. Do I really have to listen to two more? Okay. Sorry. And, Continue. uh, and it's really good. You peaked ahead to novelty mix number three. It's really good. Oh, okay, good. Like it's really good. You're gonna really like it, I'm sure. I think you're gonna like it a lot. And I think listeners are gonna like it a lot. And I'm really looking forward to doing that one for for listeners. I think it's like the best one. It's only 26 songs as well, so you know that's a relief. So it's you like so it's one less song than this album. One less song than this album, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's a relief. I think that's gonna be like make a huge difference for you. I think that you'll appreciate it. I think that, I mean, you know what, not only do I think you appreciate it, Mary, I think that you do appreciate it right now. Mm-hmm. And my question to you is naturally on a scale of one to 10, how appreciative are you? All right. So if people want to reach us, they can, <laughs> they can go to our website, sneakydragon.com yeah. or find us on Facebook at Sneaky Dragon or follow us on Twitter at Sneaky underscore Dragon or send us an email at Sneaky D at sneakydragon.com. Good job. Or uh, find our contact us info on our website, sneakydragon.com. Cool. And as I mentioned last week, if we have any listeners to, to listening party who do not listen to Sneaky Dragon, I can't imagine that's possible, but no. who knows? I just wanted to let you know that we have a listener's question episode coming up. That is our 450th episode. It is a tradition for us at every 50th episode in, a, in the set of 100 to, <laughs> to, uh, do a listener question episode and it's always it's always based on the idea that the more questions we get the more fun it will be and in order to to um, promote that idea we have a prize draw and so i just wanted to make sure that sneaky dragon listeners or sorry listening party listeners know that that we do have a that that coming up and that they'll have an opportunity to win a win a prize draw win a sneaky dragon shirt and a bumper sticker and some buttons and a mug and and uh, all those things can be yours by just simply asking us some questions and so there you go. Back to you, Mary. Cool. Oh, also one last thing. Dad, did sure. you see um, on um, the page for Sneaky Dragon Listening Party episode 38 yeah. that um, that listener, Chris Roberts, posted and said that you wore down his resistance to novelty songs? <laughs> yes, I was very happy to read that. Very happy to read that. Yes. It's, it's, ha, ha, ha. it's a I win. good comment. Yeah. Where, where he says... <laughs> this mix was bracket through clenched teeth and bracket a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I had a good chuckle too. That was very good. So don't forget, be like Chris Roberts and write into us so that you you can uh, please me and and, me, uh, and potentially hear your name on the show. And potentially hear your name on the show. That's right. There we go. And Mayor, yes, one father. more one more thing actually. On a scale of one to twenty five, how much do you want to end this show? One to twenty five. Yeah. How much do you want 
Hello, party goers, and welcome to this week's. It's not a weekly show, Mary. It's not a weekly show. <clears throat> well, you know. I'll get it eventually. Uh, we're, well, we're, we're only 39 episodes in. I was going to say, there's really no evidence for that. <laughs> there's really no no proof of you getting it eventually, but it's fine. It's fine. Hope, is, hope springs eternal. 